Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of the world. Welcome to Forum Borealis and a smashing show called Mankind versus the Cosmic Deep State. Today we revisit Gnosis and take it a little further, deeper, down into the dark cosmic abyss of the Demiurge, the Archons, and what we in postmodern terminology can call an existential and structural conspiracy against humanity. We will not only dwell on ancient times or the philosophical ideas in themselves, but also see how they apply to our current technological age, musing on everything from metaphysics to the UFO phenomenon. Our guest tonight is the natural choice for such a topic. The Archont hunter Miguel Connor, host of the incredible podcast Eonbyte Gnostic Radio, that is the number one resource for Gnosticism, ancient and modern, in this medium. Everyone who is anyone in this field has been on his excellent shows, from best-selling writers to renowned researchers, from Hollywood directors to rock stars. And his listenership reaches from academic scholars to spiritual anarchists. He describes himself as a garage philosopher, hedge theologian and general madman across the waters. His life quest is to take his audience from ancient connections to modern meaning under the motto Be the strange you want to see in the world. Connor is multilingual and has a degree in communications and in philosophy from the University of St. Thomas. His mundane career has been as a journalist, columnist, copywriter, graphic designer, video production and marketing director with more than 10 years of experience in marketing as well as 20 years as a professional storyteller in various media. His journalistic columns has been featured in, among others, Ask Men Answers, Caring.com, LoanSafe.org and TGM Promotions. His articles and fiction have appeared in such publications as The Gnostic Journal, The Heretic, Mindscape, Magazine, Reality Sandwich, The Chimerian Journal and many others. He's been interviewed by a million radio shows and podcasts. Just to mention some, Skeptico, Rune Soup, Occulture Podcast, The Higher Side Chats, Occult of Personality, and End of Days Radio. He is the author of the critically acclaimed Voices of Gnosticism from Bardic Press, gathering together leading voices on the subject from in-depth conversations with them. He is also the author of the post-apocalyptic vampire epic series, The Dark Instinct Trilogy, 
from Warner Books and AB Press, as well as the fantasy novel The Executioner's Daughter from Solstice Publishing. His fictions are considered a spectacular success for its genre and is cited in prestigious journals. His esoteric and philosophical education has mainly been autodidact, except for a brief affair as an initiate of a Martinist order. However, his life journey has brought him to such places as Brazil, Tanzania, Mexico, Peru and Portugal, but now he lives in the lawful dystopia of the greater Chicago area with his big family that includes dogs and five kids, patiently waiting for the beginning of the world. When it comes to the rather obscure topic of archons, Miguel is probably one of the leading experts out there in terms of popular media and therefore the optimal fellow to sit down with and conduct a fascinating chat about it. Welcome to the forum, Miguel. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Al. It's such a pleasure. I have been aware of you for some time your shows actually and i did contact you long ago from another mail yes yes didn't hear back so fortunately i had our mutual friend robert bonomo on recently and he was he was totally you know supporting to hook us up (laughs) (laughs) and he facilitated that and i'm happy for that yes i love robert i love his work and uh yeah sorry i didn't get your mail as a podcaster i know how it is you contact someone and then you assume oh oh woe is me they're ignoring me and then you realize we're all just very busy and yeah but uh, let's blame it on the archons though we're always off the hook yeah they'll get at you a little later today (laughs) but uh, no but finally we we managed to because i have a very respect for your shows podcasts are usually not that profound in i mean they can be far-reaching in topics they cover but being american and going deep that's not your everyday um, occurrence so (laughs) so that i appreciate and i also appreciate the subject matters i see you've had on some guests that i've had on like uh, churton Mm -hmm. and you mentioned also alex of skeptico Mm-hmm. So, like Robert told me, he said that our waters are very close to each other. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think um, because, you know, my audience enjoy my shows, they probably <laughs> enjoy <laughs> enjoy your and your shows too then. And your show, so people know, is called Aeonbyte Gnostic Radio. That is correct. Yeah, let's start with the name. What's up with that? Uh, honestly, <clears throat> in pure honesty... I, there was a vision I had, uh, I think when I was like 12 or 13, about this character called Aeon Bite. And this is long, I was 
back then, yes, I was a sci-fi geek and enjoyed playing Dungeons and Dragons and all that, but I had no idea about the esoteric world or that I was just, I was a good Catholic boy, mm. but the term, so I had no idea what an Aeon, wa Aeon was or whatever, but this figure, this sort of uh, warrior-like white-headed person kept appearing in it. Uh, later, I would find out it was sort of my... Uh, archetypal image of Sophia and other characters that it would appear in my fiction. So I, I simply wrote a short story about this uh, woman traveling through space, and uh, the name stayed with me. And then years later, I, when I started podcasting, it started out as uh, Coffee, Cigarettes, and Gnosis. And that's when I wasn't very serious in a commercial way or in a reach way. I mm. was simply doing podcasts to share scholarly views on Gnosticism. And uh, as it expanded to, uh, you'd say, the satellites of Gnosticism, uh, Greek esoteric, uh, Kabbalah, occult, secret societies, that's when I rebranded it as Aeon by Gnostic Radio. And it was basically a Aeon as a form of <clears throat> these ancient uh, super gods of the Gnostics, you can't even call them gods, but these personifications of the divine mind. And by mm -hmm. It's sort of, uh, it made sense as something modern, but again, the name came to me years ago when I was a child, and it's funny in our lives, that's how it works out. These images and names and uh, experiences kind of can drive us later on as adults if we listen to them. Yeah. Hey, um, the first um, podcaster I had on, I think, was Alex, Skeptical Alex. And mm. I realized, because before I had him on, I, I had bias to, you, you know, it can be in naval contemplation, mm. podcasters interviewing each other. Oh, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but then I realized I actually enjoy it, probably because we both know how to <laughs> conduct an online conversation <laughs> plus you know if you pick your the right guests but here's the thing with you i have the excuse that i have with my main guests my main guests are usually authors sometimes researchers or, or otherwise um relevant but most of them are authors and the good thing with you then is that you are also an author and we'll get back to that later but you've actually written books and we'll go through them so so you're here both as a podcaster and an author but let's rewind now to Gnosticism. Uh, we've had uh, Timothy Hogan on. I don't know if you had him on. No, I have not had the pleasure, but I do follow his work. I like his vibe. Right. So that's the only purely Gnostic show we've done so far. And many people complained that we didn't touch certain aspects that I think we can touch a little today. I'm reserving the sexual aspect for Churton when we have him back, although we can, of course, touch upon it. <laughs> yeah, no. But then we're going to have like a pure... <laughs> it's a synchronicity. I actually have uh, Tobias's book, Gnostic Mysteries on, and Se of Sex, right in front of me. Right. For some reason, I took this book out this morning. Oh, right. Well, it's been laying next to my bed for <laughs> two years now, and I haven't uh, even started it. Shame on you, shame well, on you. Well, <laughs> you know, you know how, I, I guess you know how it is if you have authors on. It's just yeah, piling this, up, right? <laughs> yeah, the sin of unread books. Not just for podcasters, anybody. Anybody right. who's searching has a stack of books they, yeah. that just mocks us. Yeah, it yeah. mocks us. 
So we're back to Kronos again, like we talked about before <laughs> we started. But um, anyway, so let's rewind to Gnosticism. Um, we're going to do that today. And I want to ask you, first of all, how you um, awoken to that. How I woke into Gnosticism? Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, there is a saying by uh, Gnostic Bishop Stefan Heller that says, uh, every serious artist is already half a Gnostic. Mm. So I think anybody who seeks art or just seeks bigger truths or seeks to expand the mind, and I mean, ultimately, any good form of religion is a form of art, uh, will find themselves in understanding or having at least an affinity for the Gnostic plight. That is uh, that feeling of being an outcast, that somehow we are not home, we are far away from home. That feeling that we, uh, as the poet says, alone and afraid in a world I did not create. Mm. That there is something better outside and that there are forces who are very on purpose, keeping us asleep, keeping us ignorant, and that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole world seems to be asleep or in a state of ignorance or, <clears throat> excuse me again, in a form of sort of cattle mentality. Mm. And again, these are the people, as I mentioned, those of us who are young, younger would play Dungeons and Dragons or read a lot of science fiction who later were in the alley smoking marijuana with our friends and listening to Pink Floyd or Rush or whatever, name your band. So uh, from the very as I was very young, I always had that Gnostic feeling again, that that existential feeling of uh, loneliness and being outcast, that feeling that there was something more real than the reality that was presented by culture and even nature itself. Yeah. And uh, again, as I mentioned, I was raised Catholic, and uh, but I was always a seeker. My mom was sort of the very ecumenical Catholic kind of person. She wanted to explore and experience other religions, understand them. So I was that way too. And of course, I was a avid fan of mythology as I, as I was comic books. So I, I took many journeys to, uh, and uh, when I took a journey, I always believed like the Frankian Jews of the 17th century or 18th century that uh, if you're going to go and study a religion, experience the religion. So I I have been to a Shiite mosques, I went to J Hindu ashrams, Buddhist temples, embraced the religion. So all, all this stuff was before you came to Gnosticism? That is correct, that is correct. The only time I'd hear about the Gnostics was uh, in college, the priests would, it almost like it was part of their uh, script. We'd be in class in college at the University of St. Thomas and they'd say, oh, and by the way, the Gnostics were these evil Christians who believed in reincarnation. Uh, stay away from them. Mm. It's almost like it was part of every lecture or every semester, but that's that's really it. And I pay no I pay no no attention to that. So um, as I embraced all these religions or face and experimented and even uh, embrace atheism for about six months until I found it just too boring, I um, eventually uh, started, uh, I mean, you could say it was a lot with the, uh, the success of the Da Vinci Code and the sort of uh, uh, resurgence of romantic Knight Templar, um, you might say, well, you might say interest that was out there. And so I would hear more about the Gnostics, more about the Gnostics. And I remember reading Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels. And still, it didn't really affect me. But uh, I think it was, uh, and I think what drove me, Al, 
was really the part that every time I would embrace some religion or faith or ideology, it just wasn't enough. It, I always felt like that they were all selling out. At the end of the day, they were all saying, well, things are going to be okay. There's a divine plan. Just do what we do. Do what we do. What we're told, or what we're doing, and everything will be okay. There wasn't enough of that sort of uh, hardcore drawing a line in the sand that I was experiencing. That sort of really ultimate rebellious thrust, which is something mm -hmm. that I felt my heart was seeking. And uh, eventually, I really started to. I joined a started. I became part or started attending a Gnostic church here in uh, Chicago. Oh, which one? The church, it was affiliated to the Ecclesia Gnostica in L.A., and uh, it was more independent, and it was actually at a Freemason hall yeah, outside but, but, of Chicago. But even uh, the Ecclesia Gnostica has a million lineages. I was just wondering which um, lineage we're talking about here, because if there's anywhere there's complete chaos... It's when it comes to Gnostic lineages of church, Gnostic churches. <laughs> I mean, there's a million. Yes, yes, there is. And uh, I don't remember really the name. It was Bishop Bob. And uh, it was basically a small group. And we used to, again, meet underneath at the cellar of the Freemason Hall in Villa Park. And uh, Wait a minute, Freemason Hall. It, that yeah. wouldn't be the same one where the... Publisher of Kibalion Wrestling. No, no, no. Then that's within the city. This right. Um, Villa, oh, sorry, it was Villa Park is actually about ten miles outside of Chicago. So oh, okay. it was the Villa Park Freemason Hall, and uh, so that's where we met. And uh, basically, I started reading the Nag Hammadi Library, reading Gnostic authors, and uh, it was sort of. Uh, yeah, attaching itself to me or became interested, but it was really the spark that opened it all was uh, when I actually, in tandem or in parallel of reading the Nag Hammadi Library, I picked up uh, Philip K. Dick's Vallis, and that's when suddenly, as you might say, I took the red pill, if you would. That's when things really became crystallized, like the whole Gnostic philosophy opened up to me. And that, of course, then that oddly led to a series of powerful synchronicities. I went back home to um, Lisbon, Portugal, where I was born. Oh, wow. And there I became uh, involved in a Santo Daime group. My uncle was actually the, the patriarch of the Santo Daime oh, wow. in Lisbon. So you, you've done your share of uh, DMT, yes. I mean ay ayahuasca. Yes, I had no idea what it was. I came to <laughs> Portugal, found out that my uncle had uh, converted from Hinduism to Santo Daime, and he said, well, why don't you join one of our rituals? We just have some tea and we sing some Christian songs and we dance. And I said, oh, sure, that sounds, I'll kill an evening doing that. And Took ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, just for the benefit of the listener, let me inject that uh, Santo Daime is this Brazilian, I think, originated. The kind of mix of Catholicism and uh, native uh, shamanic stuff where they do these rituals where you can. I, I have, I was together many years ago with a Sami, you know, the Samis, the minorities of Norway. No, uh, no. Well, we have, they are like, you're native Indians, only they look, they look like Norwegians, actually. <laughs> Many of them are blue eyes, and, but they live in, well, those who live traditionally, they have teepees, uh, as the Americans call it. And they have reindeer and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, they also have shamans, or shamans, or however you pronounce mm -hmm. it. That's called a noida. 
So she uh, actually, I never partook in the Santo Daime stuff, but she uh, checked it out as a part of her obligatory shamanic um, education, I guess. Right. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I knew about them when I came to Norway. And it seems to me that many of those Indian farers, you know, those uh, people who are into all sorts of Kundalini, yoga, whatever, right? These yeah. very popular things. Many of them were... So I, I see how your uncle went from Hinduism to Santo Daime. That's <laughs> what I'm seeing here. Yeah, too. So, it's appealing to well, them. Well, Santo Daime, yeah, it's very, well, it is very syncretic. Like you said, it is sort of Christian mixed with uh, Brazilian, uh, might say paganism, tribalism, but it's very syncretic to yeah. talk about chakras and reincarnation and all that. But again, the the centerpiece is always the Eucharist of the Santo Daime, the DMT or ayahuasca. And after I did a few sessions of that, that really crystallized or set me on the path of Gnosticism. I had several out-of-body experiences and visions and coupled with Philip K. Dick reading the Nag Hammadi Library. Oh, and a UFO sighting in Portugal. But UFO sightings are very common in Portugal, especially when you go to Sintra and outside of Lisbon. So, so you're actually a European? A dual, dual. I have dual citizenship. My mother was Portuguese and my father was American. Oh, okay. But fantastic. It means that, uh, I mean, Portugal is a perfect vacation place, both mm -hmm. because it's <laughs> by nature a perfect vacation place, but also because <laughs> it's cheap, right? Yes, so, yes. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. You. to. Yeah, well, thank you. And it, again, it's a place of uh, full of mysticism, magic realism, and like I said, UFO sightings. And uh, right. all these things sent me on the path. By the time I, I guess, returned home from Portugal, I was there for about a month. I decided uh, Gnosticism was my path and I was going to start a podcast because I wanted to share with the world. I wasn't a scholar or a, I have a degree, but I'm not a religious scholar and I wanted to understand. And I thought, well, the best way to understand something is to uh, get it from the horse's mouth and share it with the world at the same time. And right. lo and behold, uh, Aeon by Gnostic Radio came to being. Right. Well, that's that's an interesting journey. It, it shows that you approach this from a living, uh, from a, a live place, not from a mental, intellectual place. It's it's real for you. It's right. something that uh, is um, yeah in your nature. And like you said, you, you I mean, you were a Gnostic before you even knew what it meant, right? Correct. And I I think <clears throat> ever since the hippies, it's been a huge focus on the East. Everyone wants to go to the other side of the fence where the grass seems greener. And it's kind of ironic, I think, that there's so little insight into the Western spiritual traditions. Well, not maybe that ironic because we've had, uh, we've been cursed with monotheism and that's been very suppressive of our original and genuine spiritualities, traditions. Exactly. But I think if many of these seekers, New Agers, the yoga people, the right. Buddhist people, and I'm not for a second trying to put down those great uh, spiritualities, Taoism included, but if many of those seekers had no known about the West, what actually is hidden in our own garden, I think many of them would have become, for example, Gnostics. 
I would say so too. Like you said, it is very rich. It is diverse. I would disagree that many would become Gnostics. I would say few become Gnostics. I would highly advise people, and I'm not trying to play reverse psychology, but <laughs> not, don't go down the Gnostic path because it is uh, it is pretty brutal. It is harsh. I mean, if there was a group that remains controversial in all most uh, ideologies that's been persecuted by all ideologies including buddhists in asia it would be the gnostics because mm. it has a very non it doesn't compromise in its reject rejection of sensible reality of the control systems of the world and uh, basically calls every individual a false robot. So, and that's a hard pill to swallow. That's the red pill of Neo in the Matrix. <laughs> okay, but let's explore. Maybe there's there's a genuine disagreement here. That would please me if there was, because I, I, I much too often agree with my guests. Obviously, since I'm picking them. <laughs> <laughs> but but let's see here, because I think that it's just as hard. To, if you're seriously walking down, let's say, a Vairayana Buddhism path or a Tantra Yoga path, as soon as you go beyond the religious uh. aspect and you, you enter the individual spiritual formation aspect, it's going to be hard no matter which approach. It's my view. Sure. But you think like maybe the more peace and love people should is better off with, let's say, esoteric Buddhism and the more hardcore people for Gnosticism or? Well, I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, like Theravada Buddhism shares a lot of Gnosticism, the sort of uh, the dualism, the rejection of reality and so forth. Uh, but uh, outside of that, I mean, if if individuals still want to cling on to the, to the idea that nature is good and there is some sort of uh, harmony in the world and all that, then Gnosticism probably isn't the way to go. Having said that, I think what the experiences of these religions are all good. They're scary, just like uh, any sort of uh, eye-opening, uh, consciousness-expanding, ego-challenging experience is scary. But at the same time, there is an immense amount of bliss, and you find that in Gnosticism. You find this, uh, yeah. when you read these experiences, there is a joy, there is a transformation, there is a gratitude that uh, is is amazing. I mean, as a, a scholar, Robert Price called the Gnostics, they were Christian bodhisattvas. They were the version mm -hmm. of the bodhisattvas because they had been transformed and you, you can read the joy and the happiness, but at the same time, they were still, you might say, rebelling against the world, against all the other religions, the institutions. They were basically the anarchists of their days. They yeah. decided that this, that you couldn't, uh, you really couldn't uh, compromise with reality, with culture or nature. And that's so the experience is really amazing and rewarding in Gnosticism, just as it is, and I would say in any religion, whether you're St. Francis of Assisi or Buddha, uh, it's that shamanistic, mystical experience, but on a philosophical, ideological level, that's really where the weapons come out, and that's really where there is uh, no compromise or taking sides when it comes to Gnosticism. Okay, okay, let's, <clears throat> let's dig into the dirt now. We have to start by defining, I mean, many of them, I have, uh, like you, I guess, I think I have above average aware listeners, but oh, okay. we have to cater to everyone. So let's start with basic definition. Sure, sure. 
because uh, Gnosticism is used very broad and it can be also used more strictly, more academically. Uh, for me, it's pretty simple. Uh, it is anyone who follows the Gnosticauton principle, which means that they don't have to even know the word Gnosis. Right. But, of course... They can also be pegged into specific traditions uh, in the world. And so let's start there. If you would indulge us and define Gnosticism. Sure, Al. I would say first, and perhaps this is what confuses a lot of people, because Gnosticism has many ma manifestations throughout history. Exactly. You can find the, the Gnostic impulse or thrust with the Sufis, the Kabbalists, uh, many other, the Cathars, uh, and so forth, even some of the Persians like the Mazdakians and others. But because, as, April, as scholar April DeConnick said, and I think she hits it on the head, Gnosticism is not really a, a, a religion, it's more of a metaphysical orientation. Mm. And that's why it can fit or even become almost a parasite in other religions, which it seems to do throughout history. <clears throat> and basically because it takes uh, this stance upon the spiritual or metaphysical world, and that is that uh, A, we exist in a false, I wouldn't even say false reality, but as Gordon White said, a fabricated reality. It's not the playful illusion that seems to be part of the cosmos, but it is actually manufactured to keep us down. And what is the part that is keeping down? Well, the second part is that Gnosticism posits that within each one of us, there is a divine spark as they call them there is a shard of infinity or ultimate consciousness and this consciousness for whatever reasons depending on the gnostic myth or where it attaches itself was separated from an ultimate consciousness or as the gnostics call it an alien god monad whatever you want to call it the demiurge <laughs> Well, the demiurge would be part of the, the the mechanism that is keeping us down, uh, creating the fabricated mm. reality. Mm. And the way to, again, make contact with this alien god beyond the cosmos, beyond the structures of the creator gods and the spirits and their uh, slaves in the world and in the, in the institutions and the religions is through these shamanistic rituals that would create very much like the mystery school religions when you really look at the Gnostic rituals with the idea that uh, we are meant to uh, send our souls or our consciousness down into these sort of hells or Hades. Basically, you could call it a, uh, in a modern way, a way where we face our egos mm. and and uh, then our, our souls or our, our consciousness are then sent beyond the cosmos. And the Gnostics had very elaborate rituals where they would go through the different heavens and uh, with passwords and magical rituals to get past the lords of each of these heavens until they made contact with this alien god or supreme consciousness. And unlike with people, especially the detractors, the church fathers and religious fundamentalists say, Gnosticism was never about just leaving your body and escaping the universe and uh, becoming one with the ultimate source. No, it was the thrust was to make contact with this ultimate uh, intelligence and then come back with this energy and transform yourself, your being and your mind, heal your trauma 
in your in your life and just become a more uh, you might say in an alchemical way become an individuated whole and ultimate a divine human being i just mentioned become a christian bodhisattva because yeah, and illuminated right you are meant to help others awaken their divine spark so they can take their own journey so i mean again i'm talking it's very much like the the mystery rites that you get in elicius and so forth there mm -hmm. is a parallel to that and we just mentioned dmt when i took dmt it was the same thing i I experienced for hours while I was dancing around these horrors, every fear, every uh, uh, negative emotion I could have was just thrown to me, every memory, and I felt I was in hell. But eventually this breaks when you're doing Santo Daime, and suddenly I am floating in the sky in a sense of bliss and also fear because I'm escaping my ego and my body, and then I'm making contact with this forces beyond me, and then suddenly I'm back in the body. So, uh, in essence, that is Gnosticism. Right. And Gnosis is a central part. Of course, Gnosis is this sort of direct experience with a higher form of consciousness, while at the same time a realization that the world we live in is not home, and it is a fabricated construct meant to keep us trapped. Right. Let, let's, let's explore that a little before moving on to other branches of, of what you just um, related there. Because, you know, we mentioned Buddhism. For many mm -hmm. people, it will ring similar to the concept of Maya. We're trapped in an illusion. Oh, we have to break out of the wheel of reincarnation. Uh, oh, exactly. there's a possibility to actually personally get there without these middlemen, these uh, controllers that we call priests and church. So, exactly. uh, so that goes to the similar. I, I think that the definition. Who was it that coined that definition? You said in the beginning that they are an orientation more than yeah, a metaphysical orientation. That is scholar April De Conic from uh, Rice. Yeah, University. very well put. Yeah, because you can find, by that token, you can find Gnostics everywhere. Exactly. In most traditions, and, and you do. And when they become many enough, uh, it becomes like a tradition. Exactly. You can see it. I mean, the Toltec uh, among the Amero-Indians, uh, there's uh, esoteric uh, Taoism. There's all over the world, you have these deep esoteric spiritual traditions that has a few things in common. One of them is that they're, mm -hmm. I wouldn't even call it theology, I would say the philosophy, the cosmogony, whatever, is often nature-based. Mm -hmm. It's based upon nature rather than uh, lunatics, personal visions. <laughs> and then you, then you get an objective thing, something that you know, can be valid across symbols, language, culture, whatever, and time, notwithstanding time. So it, it kind of breaks away from the limit of time and space. But anyway, so that's one thing. And the other is that you as an individual soul can reach those levels. You personally yeah. can get there. Not that it's something that is fitting for everyone, but <laughs> it, potentially as a human being, you have uh, that gift that you can get to the roots. Now, you also mentioned that it's a constructed reality, and mm -hmm. that reminds me of the modern hype today among scientism people. Even atheists are clinging to this new fad now, uh, mm -hmm. about we us living in a simulation. I guess if it wasn't for computers, 
their narrow minds would never get that uh, <laughs> metaphor. But now that we have computers, they're starting to actually produce something we could call philosophy. <laughs> and that's this idea that we live in a simulation. And Elon Musk is one of the people who talks a lot exactly. about that. He's brilliant, though. But and uh, yeah, and, and this, what's this called? This actor who pretends he's a scientist. Everybody loves him. He, he's a black American. What's his name? Are you talking about Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah, yeah. People like him even are positive to this. And I just read somewhere in a popular science magazine, uh, I forgot the details and the source, but I thought it was hilarious that some scientists have, have re physicists have reached the conclusion that we are projections mm -hmm. from an, that we are like avatars, not, not mm -hmm. avatars in the traditional meaning, but avatars in a modern meaning, that we are like computer figures, so to speak, Darn and right. that our real selves, they, they say they can prove it <laughs> mathematically, that our real selves are far, far away in another dimension. And I, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, when are these materialistic minds going to, you know, wake up and smell the coffee? There's nothing new under this sun. <laughs> this is exactly right. what... So I'm, I'm thinking, that's a way for people to see how Gnosticism, you know, like Matrix actually displayed in detail, that all these new concepts is just a rehash of the old Gnosticism. What do you think? Oh, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, yes, I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think uh, new atheism has figured out that materialism just isn't going to work. It's false. So as they keep exploring, of course, uh, as uh, technology seems to mirror what the Gnostics were talking about 2,000 years ago, that it's a constructed reality with levels of different realities ruled by different uh, beings who control the code. I mean, uh, mm. yeah, the Matrix, which is perhaps, our, perhaps, I would say, or arguably the most powerful modern myth we have is basically a Gnostic gospel in a movie form. And uh, even again, I think... Uh, Backing up a little bit, you were talking about Buddhism, and Buddhism is certainly a cousin to the Gnostics. Uh, you could Mara in the new in the Buddhist uh, myths is the the Gnostic version, the Western Gnostic version of the Demiurge, that being right, that right. controls the code and controls and keeps us down, so we won't awaken. In the movie The Matrix, that would be the architect, who is right. uh, the one who makes the code and keeps us down, and very much, if you want to know why we're trapped here, it's because the rulers that are up there, uh, as the Gnostics call them, the Demiurge and his Archons, they feed off our light to sustain their fabricated universe, just like in the Matrix. The Matrix needs our brains to power the Matrix. So that's, in a way, obviously, that, that seems to be a, a really big distinction from other traditions, because I'm not in aware in Buddhism why Mara wants to keep uh, Siddhartha from waking up. Well, there are concepts in around the world that similar where you have... Uh, this idea of, uh, and this is very dark, the, we're opening a very dark door now, we're just going to put a toe into it and then we're going to move back to <laughs> other darkness actually, I have a list of stuff <laughs> but there is this concept that there is a need for the well I wouldn't say the divine because we can have sub deities here, but there is this need for something that is greater than us and is somehow in charge or related to, to this existence, that it kind of needs 
some energy of us. The whole rationale for the horrible, horrible human sacrifices is playing right into this. Right. And I believe in a modern form, you can say that as, as and, and what they did, um, that pain and suffering, it's a kind of a Satanism, I think, mm. will generate energy that is needed for this uh, cycle to maintain, if you, if you see what I mean. And so th- these stupid idiots then, they <coughs> sacrifice people to the so-called gods. Right. So there has been notions like that, but I agree that the Gnostics have a very specific and very interesting, uh, almost you could call it a liberation theology, because they they are protesting, they are not accepting to for us to be trapped in this scheme. And it's interesting, if you see the Kabbalists, they talk about how uh, when the first human being, uh, you know, they say, okay, we're born with a God spark in us. And so... Right. Unlike angels and other creatures in the cosmic hierarchy, we have something of God. We we are all the way from the source because mm-hmm. we have the spark and we are all the way down here at the end in the matter. And that means that we have a bigger range than any other creature in cosmos. Yeah, and, and, and we can come home. That's the thing, right? That we can walk, find a path back home. Like everyone talks about in every spiritual tradition. But interesting enough, when the first human being in the Abrahamic lore called Enoch reached that level, God made him, elevated him to the same levels as, as the angels. In fact, not only that, he even <laughs> he even could rule as God's right hand from, from the divine throne, and he was called Metatron. Right. Interesting, by the way, the two only angels that are not called El, you know, like Mika, El, Uriel, that's right. Sandalphon and Metatron. Mm-hmm. So... That provoked, we're talking symbolism here now, people, but that provoked Lucifer, uh, who was used to be the greatest. Oh, how can these lowly human beings come here and pretend they can be at our level? So there was a fight. Michael beat Lucifer. He fell. And so the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's interesting clues in those myths because it shows that the Gnostics are right that we human beings can break free and get back to that level. We don't have to keep feeding these. Yes, that is correct. And Anna, I think this is the perfect place to enter the Archons. Would you say that uh, these agents in Matrix are a symbol for the Archons? I would say you're spot on, and uh, I, I love what you're saying about Gnosticism. You definitely get it. And uh, for some reason, I was thinking of Terry Pratchett, uh, what he called us humans. We are where the falling angel meets the rising ape. And I think that's <laughs> we are really the nexus of all, everything that is spiritual, mental, and material in this universe. And I'm sure there's some gods and spirits who just don't like that so yeah. that's where we need to belong in the original myth it was what prometheus created the humans with the help of athena which is very much like the gnostic myths where it's uh, you might say uh, sophia creates the humans and mm. well the demiurge fashions us 
and it's Sophia who who breathes lives, but then the demiurge and Zeus, who is the demiurge, keeps us here enslaved as his well yeah. as his servants. But um, backing and, up and popularized uh, nowadays in the more material concepts, they talk about ancient aliens, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. For me, that's very often that they're just materializing uh, the spirituality. That's exactly. It's very much like Elon. As you mentioned, he is pretty much toying or going deep into Gnosticism, but he's still keeping it in a sort of material, uh, yeah, he's keeping it within the universe. There's nothing transcendental, even though he's getting closer to the truth. And um, yeah. good for him. We evolved a little by little. But yes, the Archons, um, yes, the if you wanted to know what the Archons are, then definitely uh the agents in the matrix would be them. Obviously, the Gnostics saw the Archon comes from the term um, prince in Greek. And it's always good to keep in mind that if it's one thing that you find in the Gnostic scriptures, you think, well, it's so dark and mystical, is they love parody and they love social criticism. It's nonstop. Again, that's why I like about them, because they just weren't playing around. In ancient times in the Greco-Roman world, the Archons were the name of the, the bureaucrats that uh, ran the Roman <laughs> Empire. And, right. the, and, and it should be mentioned, too, which is people forget, that Demiurge is a, in the Greco-Roman tradition is a very holy being. Uh, as in Plato's mythology, in the Timaeus, it's, you have the world of forms, and then you have the chaos, which is the leftover. So the Demiurge is the one who fashions the world and creates the harmony of the world. And uh, in Neoplatonism, Plato, in fact, even in Christianity, the church father Justin Martyr called Jesus the Demiurge of God, because this, he was the one that brought order to the cosmos and gave it structure and laws and all that. Again, the Gnostics, because they just weren't going to accept that, they made a parody out of the Demiurge, which was something that really was blasphemous. I mean, as they bringing back April DeConnick, she says the Gnostic scriptures didn't become uh, heretical. They were heretical from the start. They started with the idea that everything they used to... No, but hang on. How, how could they be when there was no dogma in the start? Or, or do you mean the start from the Church of Peter? Is that what you mean? Because between Jesus and the first official, well, let's say Constantine at least, <clears throat> it was uh, it was like you know people say Hinduism. Hinduism isn't a religion. Hinduism is a is an umbrella of different pagan traditions, right? right? And that's how even when Christianity emerged. That was the rule. That was it. Was a Western Hinduism here? There was a million traditions. We've mentioned many of them already today. But even within Christianity, I mean, some sometimes the the where was the border between Christianity and paganism? It was very vague sometimes. Right. For example, even in the Christian era, even Hypatia had a lot of Christian, many powerful. Many of them became very renowned scholars of Christianity, but she had many Christian pupils. So there was this fluctuating, you know, the borders, the concepts we are thinking of today, especially in academia, where they are so anal. Those concepts weren't uh, alive back then. They, 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 they weren't the realities. People just were, right? People yeah, just, but I you think, see what I mean? So, yeah. so, so calling it, I'm ag agreeing with you that it's heretic in that it rebels against control spirituality 
uh, it's a liberation philosophy. But who's to say you could just as well claim that Gnosticism is closer to the original teachings of Jesus because very much uh, indicates that Jesus, you know, everybody says he was an Essene. Yes, he may have been, and kudos to him for that. (laughs) But more than that, he also seems to have been a therapeute, whatever they were (laughs) called, which is a (laughs) more Pythagorean Jewish sect. And so Jesus himself, or Yehoshua ben Mariam, or whatever we should call him, was definitely closer to Gnosticism, I think. And in that context, I wouldn't say Gnostics are heretics. I would say the greatest heretics are the Satanists in the Vatican. Yeah, I'd say almost more like the the villains. But see, this is something that that needs to be understood because in those times to call out the Demiurge, the Holy Demiurge, or the the Archons, or the, the angels, the spirits, to call out the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah or Yahweh, Mm -hmm. was completely controversial and an antithesis to everything that the pagans, Christian Jews could believe. I mean, saying that the gods were demons and evil, all of them, would be akin to today saying I can walk through a wall or that the, the internet is bad or it was because that was integral to the culture back then. Yeah, good point. I mean, even even you have the philosopher uh, Celsus or Celsus, who was a huge enemy of Christianity, mocked him, said things about Jesus. I mean, in his in his polemics, even he says that the Gnostics are wrong for making fun of the Old Testament. It's you just didn't do that, and. Uh, that's why the Gnostics were so controversial. And again, as mentioned, they were persecuted by Jews, Christians, pagans, and even Buddhists in Asia with the Manichaeans. Mm. So that's what they break away because they have this philosophy where, no, sorry, but uh, all our institutions, all our gods, all these spirits are keeping us trapped and we've all been fooled and it's time to take the red pill. So, yeah, a bit good for them calling out and being so early debunking the Old Testament. I mean, that's a, a pile of rubbish if there ever was. Yeah, one. They are the only one who did it until Voltaire. <laughs> <laughs> Thousand, you know, right. centuries came by before somebody decided to take a stand, mm. and that stand gave us the Enlightenment and so forth. It was a yeah. good thing. Yeah. But the Gnostics did it 2,000 years ago. And, well, they, well, obviously they had to be wiped out. But anyway, so it was, they were heretical from the get-go. And uh, they saw the Archons as basically the servants of the Demiurge. And he, they were the ones who, and it's, it's, I think, more interesting than the Christian version we get. Or even, you have this version also in Buddhism too, the demons that torture you in hell. Even yeah. though Buddhism, it's temporal. But uh, I think it makes more sense than the idea of these sort of sadistic spirits who are going to sit there and throw us on fire for millions of years or until they feel like it. uh, Poor poor spirits. How how boring it must be to be (laughs) such a spirit. I mean, it's probably fun. Even if you're a sociopathic spirit, it's probably fun for the first, I don't know, 3,000 years. Yeah. But it gets boring after a while. But now it has a purpose. Now Now they have a job, right? Now it's integrated into the system and then it makes much more sense 
Exactly. And I think the Archons make, I would say, more logical because they, the Archons are the supreme uh, beings who are the bureaucrats of the universe. <laughs> and uh, uh, they. The Aparachkis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they are uh, basically very ignorant. They're mechanistic. They like to inflict suffering only if it keeps us asleep and down. But yeah. they also like to create nice things. I mean, what did Umberto Eco once said? The cruelest demiurge is the one that gives us nice things in life. In uh, Falcom's Pendulum. Oh, that's a brilliant yes. quote. Of yeah. course, that came from Eco. Let me inject. They do uh, give us distractions more than anything because I, it seems to me, and this is just my personal observation for whatever it's worth, they don't start with playing hardball. Uh, and in that seems evil isn't the right word then if they have the job of keeping us down and asleep you know if you're smart today like the deep state we have our own archons here on earth right the deep state they're representatives yes. yeah they don't start <laughs> by killing you no they start by defunding you and funding the opponent uh, then probably want a control file on you they try to distract you they try to allure you yeah this is what I see the Archons are the first cards they're playing. I think the heavy stuff only comes when there's no way back or you have to use brute force to keep you in check. Exactly. You agree with that? Oh, 100%. I mean, uh, like you said, uh, I think the greatest evil that the Archons inflict on us, and you find it in Africa, it's called status quo. Here we are. Things aren't going to get better. Things are going to, we created this sort of uh, flawed world, but we'll give you nice things. We'll keep you, if you try to rebel, we'll keep you asleep. I mean, in some of the origin Gnostic stories, the creation ones, they use different tactics. Like in one, in the Gnostic uh, Gospels, Eve is actually the superior being. She's the enlightened being. She's a manifestation of Sophia. Because she's who, ate from the tree of knowledge. No, before that. Before oh, that. Wow. She is okay. really the one who is sent to fight the Demiurge. She's a manifestation of Sophia. Who's the father of the Demiurge in the Gnostic uh, Gospels? Right. And... Uh, because she's enlightened, they decide, Adam, they give him paradise and choose the animals. In other words, they give him every, they give him the consumer society. But Eve, they, they gang rape her over and over again until she bends to their will. So like you said, there's different ways where this cosmic deep state will keep us asleep. It's, again, whatever they can do to keep the status quo. But unfortunately, they happen to be like, most politicians and leaders of the church, they are inept bureaucrats who are ultimately ignorant. They just happen to wield supreme power. But is is the true God enslaved or, or put asleep? And so uh, there's the only way to get back is through us. What's going on here? Why are we not getting help? Well, we are getting help. I think uh, Stephen Davis, I think when I have it on the show, he simply said, if you want to keep it simple, the Gnostic story is how God went crazy and became us mm. and how we decided we were going to, we became human and we we're going to worship these false gods. So, uh, and the Gnostics had different views of how we fell down into earth during their mythologies, but the help is already there. I mean, they posited, look, 
this is a world of matter, what is truly holy is information. And the ultimate consciousness, the, the alien God, as they called him, he is always emitting uh, this sort of divine information to wake us up, kind of like Neo in the Matrix when he keeps... So he's keeping an eye on us. Yeah, he is sending the information via his uh, manifestations of Sophia, Jesus, Hermes. It depends, again, on what Gnostic group you were. Yeah, yeah. Because they were so anarchist, they had they had so many sects and uh, yeah, we we're comfortable being generalists here, and you know, right. so you go on. Yeah, so this information is being sent down to us, and if we listen to this information through, as they call it, these Gnostic revealers, then we can awake them and begin the process of uh, opening our eyes, opening our third eye, and uh, and embracing these rituals that will again give us a shamanistic. Uh, journey up there i think we talked about before the email that the gnostics were called the sons of pythagoras by the church fathers uh, for them that was uh, not a good term but uh, as you and i both know pythagoras was uh, you might say uh, he was initiated by i believe a mongolian shaman he was deputized oh, yeah. a boris right so the term Pythagorean and the son of Pythagorean in Christian times meant you you were a mystic, you were a, mm. a voyager of the astral plane. So again, it's a it's awakening. Yeah, but you can say that about uh, Druids, Sufis. Yeah, but uh, the Gnostics were they were accused by the Church Fathers of being sons of Pythagoras. So even back then. So, yeah. Although I thought the church fathers liked Pythagoras. Uh, yes, but uh, if it was associated with the Gnostics, they hated it. Let's put it that way. It's like, <laughs> it's good until I realize you're doing it too, then I hate you. <laughs> right, right, right. In, in the 1800s, Pythagorean meant you were a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is true yeah that but that's true. that's how much that term shrinked <laughs> right right but yes well the gnostics were they are cousins they are perennialists and uh yeah well okay but um sophia isn't she enslaved and kept you know her siblings are fine but she's somehow trapped that is a very good question that I have struggled with and I've actually keep doing research in. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, we, you talked about Lucifer. I mean, Sophia is really the the first Christian Luciferian figure before the, the myth of Lucifer really took on shape. The first few centuries, Lucifer was just uh, the left hand of uh, Jehovah. He mm. was the, the tester of God. Um, Sophia is a rebellious figure very much like Prometheus is, mm. but uh, in the Gnostic myths, she does rebel against the, the, the other aeons which simply compose the mind of the alien god. And the reasons are never really given. There's different uh, explanations. Uh, people assume it's because being wisdom, she just had to experience everything that needs to be experienced. But uh, in the Gnostic myths, she is cast out into the world or into the chaos because, and it, it is a very passion and loneliness and fears that gives um, form to creation, that creates matter, that uh, throws it all out there. And as she is grieving outside of the pleroma, which is one of the terms for the Gnostic heaven or the, the architecture of the mind of the alien god, 
she becomes pregnant with her own dark emotions and she gives birth to the demiurge. Mm. And the demiurge sort of takes over, takes some of her power and begins fashioning the world as we know it, a pure reflection of the divine realm. And uh, so basically it's up to Sophia to make it all right. She basically has to go to war with her own bastard son. And uh, again, try to uh, capture the light back to her, which is a light that's within us by awakening us so that we can find our own wisdom and realize that we are God gone crazy and we can go back to the source. The key is, and I, I actually had a, a debate with a scholar over the phone, is that is she a victim or she the architect of all of this? Because mm. there's a difference between, as you know, the Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, who seems to be sort of this kind of divine guy who's kind of being thrown around by Satan, and he's in the garden and he's having doubts, and he just goes through with it. Then there's a, the Jesus in the Gospel of John, who is actually in control of the whole divine play. It seems he's playing a part, but he's calling every single shot. So you wonder, is Sophia a victim and she's trying to make things better or that she actually is in control of the social total situation and she is just, this is just the story of her from beginning to end to experience everything there is to experience. So it's an interesting discussion and I'm, I suppose it's a fine line. Absolutely. Hey, I think we should take a small detour to some terminology because it just dawns upon me that we, when we're throwing out all these terms, maybe not everybody's following. I just want to say archont is from Greek and means a ruler. I think you explained that or, already. But gnosis, yeah, or friends, yes. yeah, but gnosis mm -hmm. we have to say, that means to know, basically. And so a Gnostic was someone who wanted to know. Not just believe, blind faith, keep you down, you know, middleman, priest, dogma, but someone who personally access it through an inner knowledge, inner, you know, English doesn't have the perfect word for it, but in Norwegian we call it achshannelse, in German it's achkantnung or achkantnis. It's a deeper realization. It's not just me giving you information and you registering right. that information. It's something that goes into your core. So that's the origin to the word gnosis. And we also have to say Prometheus, you've mentioned him several times. And if people are not aware in the myth, that's the god who, he was punished, wasn't he? You, you can tell us yeah. this, uh, the gist of this myth. Yeah, I would say the Gnostic vibe already existed in history. It just became, uh, you might say, weaponized in the first and second century. <laughs> Because the, the, the myth of Prometheus is an Gnostic myth. You have this Titan who has suddenly become a servant of Zeus because Zeus has taken over. And uh, he is forced to uh, create humans. And most people don't know, in the myth, is he's creating humans. It is Athena who is basically the Greek counterpart of Sophia in the Gnostic myths, mm. who breeds lives, who brings the divinity into humans. And then, you know, Zeus makes these humans uh, his slaves. And then, as most know, Prometheus wants to, has a plan, like Sophia in the Gnostic myths, and actually Athena helps him mm. to bring fire to the humans so they can awaken and overthrow Zeus. Yeah, fire here is very important in this context that fire still is, but especially back then, was a symbol of our highest 
uh, should we say, level of human beings. You know, you have fire, air, mm-hmm. uh, water, earth. So fire is akin to the, to the uh, maybe we could call it the spirit, which is really a useless word. But uh, And just like Athena is associated with our mind or our head, if you like. So fire is an important, you know, the Zoroastrians, fire is an important symbol here. It's, it's a symbol of really awakening the God spark in us. So it makes all the sense in the world. But what happened to Prometheus? Well, obviously, once he, uh, with the help of Athena, brought fire down to humans, he was imprisoned. In fact, uh, a lot of sources say that he was actually crucified to a rock, not chained to a rock. Oh, wow. And uh, you had a vulture who ate his liver. And obviously, uh, in ancient times, a liver was a, liver was one of the way you could do uh, find out about the future as a fortune telling or, ah. uh, organ. So the liver was a way of keeping Prometheus himself sort of ignorant. And yeah. uh, the myth says that, that Prometheus knew, and he wouldn't tell Zeus, that what there was a prophecy when Zeus would uh, be destroyed and by whom. But uh, we, we never find out in the myth who is going to bring down uh, Zeus. But obviously this has a lot of... Uh, Gnostic connotations, and it of course uh, sort of sifted, as some have said, sifted through Gnostics through the the cult of Orpheus, who was very much almost a, a pre-Gnostic Hellenized um, group. And of course, even before that, streaming into Gnosticism, you've got Plato's allegory of the cave. What happens there? Uh, Plato himself says we are all trapped in this cave. And we're tied, mm. and uh, th- there's a fire behind us, and people are casting shadows on the wall, and we assume the shadows on the wall are reality. And once in a while, somebody will break away, the Neo or the Waken Gnostic uh, Christian Bodhisattva, and will walk out of the cave, look at the sun, see the reality that is true reality, and then go down in the cave and try to... Uh, release the other prisoners of this cave so plato himself is already talking about archons and yeah. demiurges and gnosis and all that and uh, indeed it is a living stream i just want to uh, you probably misspoke there but the orphics came before plato obviously since plato was a pythagorean and pythagoras was initiated yes. into the orpheus myths but yes this reminds me what you say about Prometheus reminds me of the Gnostic story that it's really not God who created this world, the material world. Uh, it's really the opponents. Yeah, they are heretics in that context. They were reversing what the church said. They said that, no, no, God was the real God. He was saddened by this creation of, oh, I've, look, I've created this material universe. How great am I? Yeah, yeah. But he felt, you know, God didn't pay attention for a moment while this happened. And then he, uh, he thought, oh, I have to I have to do something about this. So he injected himself <laughs> into this world, hence soul, right? In the vain hope that gradually, slowly, this world would be spiritualized from within you know, lifted back into the light, into the huge cosmos where everybody's having fun and a great party, <laughs> except for us slaves, you know, down here. So that's that's a liberate. That, that's kind of throwing us at least a little lifeline there. And so that's a reverse. That's kind of Prometheus brought us the the fire. So the real God came through the snake. Mm-hmm. The snake is here, kind of Prometheus, and says, "Hey, eat of this tree." 
and you'll have knowledge of good and evil. And the Christians, uh, I say the Christians, woe is me, I mean the Catholics, they obviously claim this this was bad because they don't want people to be enlightened. Exactly. But the Gnostics, they were into illumination, so <laughs> why wouldn't, you know? So Yes, yes, right there. Comment? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. yes, they, they believe in uh, individual enlightenment. And uh, as you mentioned in their stories uh, in the garden, of course, uh, uh, Yahweh and his angels are the bad guys. The yeah. serpent is actually either a uh, manifestation or incarnation of Sophia, or in some of them she's an incarnation of Christ, because Christ was not the son of Jehovah, according to the Gnostics. Mm. And uh, yeah, eating of the fruit was a sort of uh, awakening into the higher mysteries, if you would. So uh, definitely spot on. How, in fact, uh, it's interesting. I was reading about this Gnostic sect called the uh, Paradics. And uh, because the Gnostics had this penchant of making the villains in the Bible the good guys mm. or the anti-heroes at the very least, so they would tattoo a dragon on the back of their necks. And they mm. said this was the mark of Cain. And it was a magical tattoo because God said nobody can harm those who have the mark of Cain. Or So they assumed that if they tattooed the serpent of the garden or dragon in the back of their necks, they would be protected from all the evil spirits and gods. So, again, this is vibe they have. Yeah, dragons and snakes all over the world. Mm -hmm. In all mystery traditions, it's associated to the path home or the enlightenment obviously you have the kundalini snake right. right you have the snake biting its tail you have it even in norse uh, spirituality you have the uh, staff of hermes and the staff of uh, uh how you spell it asclepius yeah yeah asclepius yeah no I, i'm with you and also by the way this idea that god is permeating this world it's uh, comprised in a very beautiful uh, old adage you probably heard it but it goes like this God dwells in the stone, breathes in the plant, dreams in the animal, and awakens in man. Oh, lovely. Beautiful. Yeah, there you have your four elements, by the way. I love it. Yeah, there was the Gnostics who said that God is in every blade of grass, and that uh, a stone, every stone is basically bottled light bottle divinity so right. they definitely uh grok to that uh, what you just said right uh, before we take a break and we're going to go back to the damn uh, archons but i want to touch this sex gnostic thing before we, we do it with tobias now okay. in this diverse milieu or, or stream it seems to me you have uh, everything from puritans to hedonists among the gnostics Mm -hmm. So, can we really say that the Gnostics have, like, one view on sexuality? No. I mean, there were, there wasn't there even people who, who cut off their own, excuse my French people, dick? Mm. <laughs> no, I think that, that's, the, that's the Christians, like, origin and so forth. But no, I think going back to the idea of a metaphysical orientation, it starts out like this. Yes, you have this realization, you have this experience, but... Every individual is different. So therefore, every ritual you do or whatever uh, set of rituals you do has to lead to, again, making contact with the alien god and strengthening your realization or understanding or even rejection of the fabricated reality that we live in. 
So, and the Gnostics, again, being anarchists and individualists, they, they had lodges, mostly secret to, across the Mediterranean and Europe. And each lodge had their own rituals to achieve gnosis. How you get gnosis is up to you. Mm. So some of them, for example, in Egypt had more, uh, as you say, libertine uh, practices, which included sexual rituals and sex magic. These were basically... Spermognostics? Yes, yes. Mm. These were basically to reenact, uh, the. Uh, they would reenact certain myths and... Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the sperm was the sacred seed and the blood of Sophia and the blood of Jordan. Yeah, many people believe that's the prima materia in alchemy. Right. So these sexual uh, rituals, and again, Tobias goes in detail in his book, pages after pages, <laughs> of why they did it and everything else was these sex rituals. But... Then you have other Gnostics, for example, in Rome, the Valentinians. They were more mm. sacramental. They thought that the the blood and, and body of Christ was an alchemical ritual that could transform us into gods and make us more divine. Other Gnostics were more, again, into sort of uh, entheogen, mystery religion rites, as uh, we spoke about. Yeah, the Cathars couldn't even marry, could they? At least not if they had uh, sacramental duties. It depends. There was always two levels. There were the perfects and the, the hearers. And the heroes was basically, hey, I'm not ready to give up my job and my bacon and all that. And That's what the congregation, basically, yeah. Right. And the perfects was when you voluntarily said, look, I'm ready to give my life up to uh, meditation and not eating meat and spending time uh, uh, helping the poor. And I am completely giving myself. And when you were ready, you did it. So, uh, But uh, they obviously did not. They thought the Eucharist was evil. They thought, yeah, they thought it was demonic. They thought only the Gospel of John uh, you could count on, and their Old Testament, everything else had to be had to be thrown out. So, um, but the sex certainly can be a distraction. Does um, Tobias touch upon the part of Gnostics? Who does he even try to explain the part of Gnosticism impulse that is not, I should say, spermognostic? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, 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 in his books, he, of course, he talks about, again, it's how you're going to find Gnosis. For some people, it might be sitting on a cave meditating. For some, it might be an, an entheogen ritual mm -hmm. where you leave your body. To some, it might be doing some sex practices that, uh, as you say, uh, um, awaken or reenact some sort of myth and, uh, and awaken yeah. your consciousness. So it, it really depends how you want to do it to achieve gnosis, to achieve that direct experience with the divine, as well as a, as you as you yourself that breaking away from the wheel of karma. So uh, yeah. they had varied practices, but it all really was for one achievement. Yeah, for me, and we should mention this approach too, is more about theurgy. In, in that excellent listing of possible tools, I think we should throw in theurgy too. Almost oh, definitely with the Neoplatonists and the God work. Yeah, a lot of the Gnostic rituals, especially Yomlikos. third or fourth century. Yeah, the Gnostics were they were beginning to get thrown out of the churches because they were 
uncovered. So they started joining the Plotinus in his school and began participating in this, as they call it, the, the Platonic Gnosticism, where we're doing very much the same thing as the Neoplatonists. Needless to say, um, Plotinus didn't like the Gnostics. He thought they were a huge pain in the ass and that their <laughs> views, and he just couldn't, he, he didn't like them as, all, as most, again, religious leaders and institutions do. Yeah, right. But um, uh, before we take a break, I want to share a personal story. I'm not often personal in my cho- shows, but I think it's in its place here. It's very relevant. Okay. Uh, we're talking about how we get distracted. I want to share the story with you and by default, yeah, also with NSA and our entire listenership. <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> well, I, if he's listening, I'm, I'm being flattered. Now, uh, yeah, yeah. I had this extremely interesting lucid dreaming experience some years ago, which isn't a big deal. But what was a big deal was where I ended up. I ended up in a huge library. Right. And it was straight out of a library you could see in one of the places in Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Like very romantic, you know, very high roof. <laughs> Yes, yes. Columns, everything was pretty archetypal. And so, okay, I I walked around and thought, hmm, interesting. I wonder what I will find here. And when I came to the shelves, I noticed the books were huge. I didn't see that in the distance. So I took out one of the big, big books and I had to carry it with both my hands. And I threw it on one of the old long wooden tables that was placed in the middle of the room, obviously for reading. So I put the boom, it said, and all the dust blew up. And I had to use both hands to open uh, the book, the pages. And when I started reading it, I noticed it was, uh, it wasn't words, it was living images, kind of like movie. But what came was whatever I asked. Right. And so uh, it dawned upon me, oh my God, this book can answer all the questions in Cosmos. Mm. Wow. (laughs) That's a pretty good deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was awake. I was totally awake. I knew what was going on. Yes, yes. So I was thinking, yes, (laughs) now I'm going, oh, you know, just being that situation is kind of problematic because there's so many essential questions you want to ask, right? So which one to start with? That's the thing. (laughs) So while I was in this process, I heard far behind me uh, a door opening, very, uh, what you say in English, shrieking, shrieking door? Yeah, shrieking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I heard like click, clock, click, clock. Obviously, someone walking in high heels of all things, click, clock. So I turned around just to see what this noise was. And there was this beautiful, sexy lady. I, I won't go oh, into detail okay. to describe her, but uh, let's just say she represents everything my desire nature is into. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And she was coming closer. Did I mention she was naked? No, but thanks for, yeah, <laughs> but thank for the you. shoes. <laughs> yeah, so here I am. I'm about to embark upon all the answers of the cosmos. And here she comes. Mm. It's like a cartoon, right? I'm, I'm I'm turning around and looking at her, and I'm turning back looking at the book. I'm turning around looking at her. I'm turning. I'm I'm in a huge, <laughs> very human conflict, huh? <laughs> and eventually, she's uh, next to me, and she embraces me, and that's when I'm I'm kind of getting uh, torn away from the book, and she starts to kiss me to make out, mm. and 
as soon as my lips touches her or it, because the skin, it poofs. Oh, wow. And there I am, I'm making out with a classical demon, like a oh my God. gargoyle <laughs> kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> it's like Jack Nicholson in The Shining when he kisses the girl and then she's an old lady. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. You could make that parallel. Uh, that shocked me so much that I unfortunately were thrown back and woke up. But, oh, wow. uh, but this story is so archetypal because I think it illustrates much of what we've been talking about. If you if you go beyond these obvious visual displays, you have the classical human problem. And it's also, I think, a perfect... You see the parallel. A red flag or, or alarm is going off in the Cosmic Operatskish office. Look at this dude. He's got access. What to do, what to do. <laughs> <laughs> let's send a tempter let's you know distract him right you never got you never got any answers from the book you went for the woman yes yes i, I got some but I, I didn't go as deep as i wanted to okay. and it was my own fault for not immediately realizing the trap <laughs> yes well it happens it happens i don't <laughs> i don't think i would have done better than you al i don't think i would have well who knows but unfortunately it happens in life too yes unfortunately. and not always as overt as in in that dream no no honestly can't say that yeah okay let's take a break here and let people digest this and we will come back in part two let's go deeper into the concept of the archons okay okay All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of this program today, where we are joined by Miguel Connor. Uh, your name? Say, it doesn't sound very Portuguese, so that's your American <laughs> heritage. Yes, my dad was a second, second generation Irish. Right, right. Okay. Well, and you're our resident Gnostic expert for this show today. And uh, we have been all over the place throwing in a lot of uh, information there. Probably interesting for those who know many of these references. Those who don't know it, well, now you have an incentive to check it out. (laughs) And I think it's a good thing that we brought in Matrix because that can help them. It explains uh, many of these layers in a very easy to understand. I think that's the biggest feat of the movie is that they managed to convey this stuff in a very, I don't know if simple is the word, but a very comprehensible way. Right, very modern way. And it's not the only example, Al. There are other good uh, manifestations or expressions like the recent hit show Westworld, uh, the first Lego movie. uh, If anybody watches Black Mirror, the uh, interactive one Bandersnatch. Uh, So there is a lot in uh, modern culture. I mentioned Philip K. Dick. He was very influenced by Gnosticism towards later in his life. Uh, Carl Jung was... uh, 
hugely influenced by Gnosticism. So there are other modern avenues where people can appreciate or grok Gnosticism without having to read these old texts. That Bandersnatch thing. I was in Barcelona. No, I was in Alicante. And oh, cool. I was in a place I played it or watched it or whatever you want to call it. I didn't get it at all, but maybe I failed. <laughs> maybe I should have <laughs> stick to it. So I had no idea there was a Gnostic layer there. I think I have to try again. <laughs> try it. <laughs> you might. It's the interactive one, right? Yes, correct. It it was like 20 minutes and it was completely, in a sun way, probably you could say it was uh, metaphysical, but <laughs> there was no red thread that I could spot. <laughs> but uh, anyway, okay, interesting. Yeah, and, and when Robert was on, he also pointed out, I agree with him, uh, this movie called, uh, oh, what's it called, where they stop time and they... Uh, adjusts, adjustment Bureau Oh yeah, yes, yes, yeah. that's from Philip K. Dick too So oh, yes, that's right. very Gnostic It's based on a short story of his Oh, right And the other, of course, the other big Gnostic movie is The Truman Show And uh, Christoph is definitely the demiurge And this movie also resounds very much today I mean, I think people are realizing that the Gnostics were closer to the truth mm. 2,000 years ago because it seems... Uh, well, it seems like reality is a Gnostic gospel with false layers of reality, controlling agents from far above who seem to drain and eat upon us in different ways. And uh, like you said, they don't have to point a gun and keep us in a jail. They can just feed us hmm. different uh, food that will keep us ignorant and uh, subversive. So let's say that... Subservient. Yeah, let's say that this imitator god, this uh, megalomaniac who want to be the real creator, uh, created this, you know, this little dark spot in the uttermost corner of cosmos, <laughs> in the shadow of the attention of the real gods. And let's say that a real uh, god, in lack of a better word, injected spirit or soul into this place and let's say that uh, the rest is history now could it be that they want to squeeze this life force out of us in order to maintain this uh, mock reality this mock cosmos i mean a real creator wouldn't have any need for our energy it would be per definition its energy right so could there be a relation there philosophically speaking Yes, I mean, but it has to also be understood that not only do they feed off of our energy and they lust after it like uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings with the Ring of Power, but they also want to keep it hidden away from Sophia and the other aeons. So there's different reasons why they're doing this. And uh, Hmm. I know um, it's become fashionable with uh, figures like David Icke and John Lamb Lash. Uh, even Alex Jones in one episode talked about the Archons to assume these uh, that they are extraterrestrial beings. Although they, I mean, I can't blame him. In the Gnostic Gospel, the Archons are mentioned or called stellar lords. They are the lords of the of fate. That's one way they keep us down is by making they build our fate from the beginning of our lives to our ends to make sure that we fail. We don't awaken, we aren't challenged, or we are too challenged, and that's part of their mechanism. So, uh, and of course, there's a concept of the prison planet, which uh, I think that's Ike, where we are just kept here as their 
they're slaves and by these uh, alien beings. And the Gnostics did call the supreme intelligence an alien god. That's not my term. Um, Are you familiar with John Lair? No, I'm not. He was a CIA pilot. He, he was big on coast to coast. He's old now. But he has a very interesting, you know, the old concept about the moon. Gurdjieff said that the moon consumed souls. Right. That's like a dark version of uh, Plutarch who said that in order to bypass, uh, you know, in reincarnation, we are thrown to the moon mm -hmm. and there we are divided, some are thrown back and so some can continue into the sun. Now, this John Laird fellow, he said uh, <clears throat> in, I think it was on Coast to Coast uh, some years ago, he, he laid out a completely materialistic version. I, I'm not sure if he's aware of it himself, but it was fascinating because he said that aliens reside on the dark side of the moon and they have huge antennas there and they suck up our souls. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> yes, no, and they throw us back. But this is a prison concept. It's more like David Icke and that stuff. It's right, a materi right. materialist version. Right. And I don't know if he's aware, but I was sitting there counting similarities to the ancient. Could this be a bunch of materialists grabbing these old things and say, let us see, how, how can we turn this into you know, modern myth? A scientific, yeah, give yeah. it a scientific, scientific me spin, method yeah. with yeah. our modern cosmology. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, but it still works. I mean, where I would differ is that when you read uh, people like David Icke, it almost, they, in their archaeonology, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. uh, the archons feed off of our negative emotions. That's how they fuel themselves. Uh, right. To the ancient Gnostics, again, uh, our negative emotions are just part of the their toolbox to keep us down and keep us keep, keep the hidden the divine spark hidden. And uh, I also yeah, sorry, go, go on. Yeah, and I and so that's where I think I would differ. I know people like John Lamb Lash and others have called the Archons, and I think in that way they're right. They are thought forms. They are mechanistic. They are trying in a way to be human and use humans in the best way possible. Again, they are jealous of what we are ultimately in the day. And it's interesting because, um, as uh, Eric Davis mentioned, that what separates Gnosticism from other uh, uh, groups in Western esoterica is the idea of the Archons. Without the Archons, Gnosticism is just another form of perennialism. And in fact, uh, if you, you could easily say that if there's one thing that Western esoterica from Plato and beyond does not really acknowledge is the idea of ontolo ontological evil. That's uh, it's always uh, it's part of the plan. It's a uh, uh, even Augustine. It's just a, a lack of God. It's human choice. All that the Gnostics kept that, and in fact, it was Plotinus who said that uh, one of his criticisms of the Gnostic, of his many criticism, was that they lean toward they lean too much on the Orient. By leaning mm. on the Orient, he was saying that they were still influenced by the Persians, by Zoroaster, mm. and his idea of duality of uh, good and evil Ari and so Manan, forth. Yeah. Right, mm. exactly. So that separates the Gnostics from really much all other forms of Western esoteric, which is, doesn't make sense, Al, because 
when you look at it, 90% or 95% of cultures in history have an idea of evil spirits and gods. Yeah. And somehow, Western esoterica decided it was, for some reason that I don't agree with, decided it just wasn't needed. No, there is a concept about archons in pre-Socratic philosophy, but they don't have the same role. I would say the mm. role is the big revolution here. Mm. Uh, in in pre-Socratic philosophy, they are more like, like you said, it's a part of the plan, right? But something right. went wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, the big fall. Uh, right. Akin to the earth tilting or something. That's a huge deal. Right. And let's not forget, uh, in Judaism, it was already there. When you look at the book of Enoch and so forth, yeah. there's always an idea of these angels that have fallen and are controlling the earth while Yahweh is somewhere outside. Right, right. But but I, I think uh, if you read the Old Testament, uh, it's not hard to agree with the Gnostics if you have some <laughs> wits. You know, that Yahweh is... He's a character. Whatever he is, he's not the big man. <laughs> no, no. He th- thinks he's the big man. He goes, I am a jealous yeah. God and there is no God no but me. Tribe. And the Gnostics made parody of that line in their scripture. Or there's a scene in Genesis where after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and God goes, Adam, is that you? And 2,000 years ago, the Gnostics are like, what, are you an idiot? You can't see Adam and you're the supreme being? What's wrong? I mean, they were making fun of, they were, they were yeah, taking the piss out of uh, the Old Testament a while ago. Right. Uh, there is a book called Not in His Image. I think that was the first place where I read a connection between UFOs and archons. First, are you familiar with that book? Yes, yes. It's a yeah. good book. I enjoyed it years ago. Yeah, I think it has a much more intelligent take on this aspect of it than stuff like Aiki. He makes some observations. It's not a book about UFOs. It's a it's a book about uh, Gnosticism. But yeah. one of the chapters is devoted to the airy similarities between uh, the aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Right. And... Uh, interesting elements in in ancient and Gnostic uh, lore. You are familiar with the book, so maybe you would want to make a comment upon this. Yes, that's uh, Lash's book. And again, I enjoyed it. I think it's been more than 10 years ago. I've actually interviewed him uh, back then before he made his uh, odd pivots to uh, other strange places. But uh, we don't have to talk about that. I don't uh, know anything about that. uh, (laughs) Oh, good. Um, But there is some criticism, and this I've heard from scholars, that that Lash tends to play it fast and loose Mm -hmm. with his Coptic translations. And he tends to tilt things towards uh, how he wants Gnosticism to appear. But that's technical. That's neither here nor there. And uh, I think he makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, yes, he equates Earth with Sophia. And it is true that the church father Irenaeus did call Sophia Terra or Gaia, but I don't think he was meaning it in the sense that it's Earth, because the Gnostics always thought that there was a fallen Sophia, which they called Akamoth, and she was the queen of Hades. They called Sophia the queen of Hades, but that's because she was simply the manifestation of Sophia, the spiritual honor Earth that we could relate to, and was like Osiris, was uh, 
she was in charge of the dead, so she was a psychopomp that could get the dead back to mm. where they needed to be. So I think that's some mistakes that uh, Lash makes that I would say. And but now you're now you're t taking on his uh, entire philosophy here. But what about this observation he makes? This connection he speculates, uh, admittedly so about UFOs having an Archont as a... Could this be a modern manifestation of the Archonts? Because Good question. you sound like you're pretty updated on stuff and you probably know about, let's say, what's his face? This French researcher um, into UFOs, uh, Jacques Vallée. Yes, yes. Yes, he he's made very interesting observations. The UFOs is anything but a simple subject you can struggle with that it's just a big of a subject field as gnosticism if not bigger. Oh, bigger and there are aspects to it that go straight into philosophy and religion and uh, uh, even if they are technological even if some of this phenomenon is technological it can it can still be a manifestation of a metaphysical uh, impulse in fact it could be you know, if I'm a devout Catholic, I probably get a um, Virgin Mary revelation in Portugal or wherever. <laughs> but right. if I'm living here and now, uh, a metallic object, a uh, flying saucer, as it were, would be right up my alley in order for me to comprehend or to make some kind of sense in my ape brain of this thing. <laughs> exactly. And I think whatever it is, however it manifests... Um, it wouldn't be a dumb move by the Archons to do it like that, if you see what I mean. No, of course. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the Gnostic, again, uh, that metaphysical orientation, it doesn't matter if it's aliens or angels or gremlins or your boss at work. Uh, the, the, it comes down to you are trapped and you need to find the higher knowledge, the intuition and the experience to get out of your trap. So, yes, of course, uh, in this day and age, it will look like it might look like aliens. That's what people will say in ancient times. There were these lords that rule the, the, the heavens up above. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to the same entrapment. I mean, if you want to get into the details, I don't think we'll ever find out while we are in this incarnation i feel so you can call them aliens you can call them demons but they're still the same force as a, a friend of mine said is a i don't know if the archons exist but they certainly act like they do it does feel <laughs> that this universe it doesn't make sense it does feel like we're trapped it does feel like we're far away from home and it does feel that whoever from nature to our culture really made a bad job in uh, doing things. I mean, why, who, why do we live in a universe where we have to consume others and inflict pain on others yeah. to survive? Why yeah. do we get old and die? Why do... Why does the... Why is there tragedy and humans continue to treat each other so poorly? I mean, there's a lot of seems like a, a gaping holes in the whole uh, quote-unquote harmony that is the the cosmos and whether no, but you can argue philosophically for having a limited lifespan that doesn't have to be like a bad thing but there is really no excuse I'm, I'm so happy you touched upon it you're the first i've heard 
Because I've always complained about eating. I think that if we didn't have to eat, uh, I, I think cooking is kind of boring, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm alone in this. But the thing is, if we don't have to eat, the world would be a completely different place and such so much better place. Th- there's no philosophical excuse from that. Why are we consuming? Yeah. And I think that... I agree. Uh, yeah, but I think that if matter is created by this false god, if you like, let's keep it simple and dumb it down here. And it makes all the sense in the world that such a creation has to be cannibalistic in order to be maintained and sustained. It couldn't subsist without... Because it doesn't it doesn't come from the real source. It's like a imitation. It's like a child trying to imitate what the parent has done and I think in the same manner that sending and and now I'm going to touch a modern conspiracy theory there is this little obscure conspiracy theory which I I find fascinating namely that um, we are being lured ever more because if you observe the world we had a devolution I'd say from very ancient times Everything fell down from there uh, until the medieval ages. I guess the medieval ages is rock bottom. And then it started to go up again, at least in materialism it did. Sure. And the, the conspiracy theory is that aliens are seeding us or whatever, UFOs. It doesn't have to be people or creatures from another planet. But this, whatever it is, is seeding us technology in order to lure us ever more into the material, because we morally and philosophically, I don't think we've evolved that much. I think I think you can make a better call for more ancient times. Okay, we have reading and learning everything that enlightenment brought. People can read and, and write, that helps. But in terms of spiritual maturity, I don't see it. But obviously we see uh, material, excellence and so if these creatures are seeding us ever more dangerous and advanced technology it's may it could be a part of this distraction thing i think you might be uh, correct and i would agree with everything you've said i mean uh, obviously if some have pointed out yeah i think what we are is becoming more and more linear, more and more mechanistic, mm. instead of having this sort of holistic, uh, in- integrated thought that we had in ancient times, where we could see things uh, in many dimensions and many levels. Uh, our instincts are not as connected to the world. I mean, uh, mm. something like dogs that I can predict... Uh, earthquakes or as Rupert Sheldrake uh, proved dogs have psychic powers where they can predict when I'm coming home every day somehow they know when I'm five minutes away from home and other you see that in nature Mm. that used to be an integral part of human beings we were connected to our instincts who Jung said was really the archetypes and it wasn't magic it wasn't superstition it wasn't psychic abilities it was just the way the world was it was more again connected to each other Mm. and slowly we're becoming more linear less holistic and and like you said people were becoming more mechanistic and uh, as others have pointed out like chris knowles is that it seems like after world war ii and around area 51 our technology just really shot up and that's the big question but then again that's the question right with the sumerians what happened with them you had human civilization just putt-putting along, 
And then suddenly, out of nowhere, and archaeology proves this, the Sumerians just pop out of everywhere with medicine and beer and astrology yeah. and architecture. It's like, that seems to be, it's that's impossible without some sort of outside help, whether it was star lords or aliens or some sort of ritual that broke them through, we don't know. Yeah, but that's more divine knowledge. The thing we are excellent singing now is more nitty-gritty details. Uh, it's like we're getting ever more, you know, it's more m minuscule, uh, what is it, m microcosmic uh, excellence. Yeah. Yeah, linear. We're just adding more shit to more shit. That's all yeah. we're doing. <laughs> yeah, technology especially. Yeah, so we are disconnected. From, yeah, do you know the cult of scientism? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, I mean, we live We live it. <laughs> we live it, right. So, so would you say that uh, that could be um, kind of a archont religion? Oh, of course. I mean, as as mentioned, the archons are mechanistic. They are uh, soulless, if you would. They are pragmatic, and uh, they want and they and they believe in convenience because, again, the best way to keep the status quo is through convenience. And uh, in scientism, there's no need for the bigger metaphysical questions. No. There's no need for the inner voyage. I mean, the Gnostics like. Other traditions were very much into self-knowledge. They believed, uh, I think it was Clement of Alexandria, that self-knowledge is knowledge of God, the inner life, the inner worlds of the dreams and the symbols and the archetype. And uh, that's why Jung liked the Gnostics so much, because he said uh, nobody understood the secrets of the soul like the Gnostics. So I think scientism removes that and takes us more into a mechanistic and even nihilistic form of view. And, of course, they are trying to throw us some bones with stuff like panpsychism and the simulation <laughs> and all that. And maybe they realize that they're going to lose the PR battle, so they better start giving us tidbits of the real stuff, the real food. Uh, we were talking about how the universe eats each other. So maybe they're throwing us some morsels and because uh, they know that ultimately materialism will fail. I mean, it's just uh, when you look at research of UFOs, uh, near-death experience, psychic ability. It's a, it's a very busy universe out there. Indeed. Indeed. You know, there is this question also if there are, isn't this a, it's a concept, I think, I don't know if the Gnostics have a saying about this, but Christians for many years thought that man was unique in cosmos. Yes. I think that's maybe a materialization of the fact that we are unique in this dimension, I think, in that we are creatures that reach all the way from the source to matter. But if there was human beings on other planets, I wonder if they would be tra if if all the physical cosmos would be like uh, having the same struggles, or if there could be more paradisic uh, examples out there. Was, you see what I mean? Yeah, I'd say within the material cosmos, it's the same plight. Uh, divinity is trapped in a system. So it doesn't help to reincarnate on another planet. No, no, no. <laughs> in fact, I would say is. Uh, the Gnostics and even Church Father Origins, they are other dimensions and you're still going to be trapped in maybe a different set of karmic rules, but the Archons are still in charge until there's complete transcendence. I mean, animals are, and the, some of the Gnostics said that the divine spark was in animals and they were in, in the same situation. In fact, there is a, a Gnostic uh, master called Mani who said that in all the universe, 
man is the most in need of redemption. We're the ones who are the hardest yeah. to get the, what's going on and how to get out of here and how to use the universe to help us get out of here. So uh, so uh, even in the dimensional worlds, it's probably, it's going to be a hard fight. And that's what I like about Gnosticism, Al, is that uh, the fight starts every day and the fight continues. There's no letting off the pedal. There's no compromising. There's no, it's... Uh, you know, no one gets out of here alive. Let's fight hard. <laughs> well, the fact that we uh, have a choice, unlike animals, is both a curse and a blessing. Exactly. Exactly. And who knows what the choice is? It's like uh, Neo in the Matrix with the uh, the Oracle. It's like, uh, I knew what choice you were going to make. Now you just have to understand why you made it. Right. You may, may not have free will, but you can't understand why there is no free will. Well, would you say, is free will a concept in Gnosticism? Oh, very much. Again, uh, they talked about the Archons being the lords of fate, the stellar lords. They rule the planets, the moon, and so forth. So they control the entire apparatus that is uh, fate. And they assumed that basically free will was pretty much non-existence except for a small part of us that could awaken and sort of uh, maybe change fate. There is one Gnostic gospel, which I love, which uh, Jesus sort of plays a Superman. He goes around and he tilts the Zodiac just a little bit. And it gets the Archon sort of confused. <laughs> and by tilting the Zodiac, human beings wake up because for one split second, yeah. We're not under the power of uh, the fates that have been bring, bought to, brought down to us, and we have the ability to maybe take that little niche, that little crack in the system and get out. Uh, what did you say in the Matrix? Deja vu means a glitch in the Matrix. And mm. those little moments that all of us have to escape from the wheel of karma, the wheel of destiny, but those are rare, and you, so you might not you only get one chance, who knows? Yeah, I love reciting this Cohen quote, there is a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Oh, uh, one of my favorites, <laughs> yes, yes, I think, uh, and he's influenced by Kabbalah, so he has a lot of Gnostic vibes. I mean, among, among other things, yes. Yeah, everybody knows, that's one of, I love, I think it's a great Gnostic song. Mm. <laughs> Right. It's political, it's everything. But of course, as everything, it has to work on several levels to be exactly illuminated. So you would reject the thought experiment then that there could be like, an, as in the movie Avatar, like planet out there? I would be surprised. I don't think it changes any sort of Gnostic vibe or occult vibe. Why not? I mean, uh, yeah. Well, th then it would be paradise on Earth. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Gnostics agreed with uh, the Church Father Origin that uh, Earth, the material world, is simply the high, the lowest, the highest plane of hell. So uh, there is uh, any paradise you have, you're just being a masochist if you think it's a paradise. <laughs> <laughs> your bones are going to be sore, you're going to be hungry and have to... Some animal has to die and suffer so that you can get your food. You're going to argue with your boss. You're going to feel alone when, or have a sense of insecurity when you're in bed at night and wonder if there's an afterlife. I mean, these things happen throughout the day. And uh, the idea is to grab on to those uh, few moments of gnosis and uh, joy and enlightenment that flow from beyond, from the world of information. Mm. But um, if we are in a situation where the we're trapped in a, a, a false imitated existence then um, there's 
You know, there's two schools here, actually, when it comes to the fact that we are excelling in technology, because on the one hand, it could be a distraction. It could be what they want us to. Maybe they want to see us end up as... I, th- I think it's an archont wet dream to see us as cyborgs or uh, not cyborgs. What's it called? Mix of machine and right. man. Transhumanism. Yeah. yeah, that's an archont wet dream. But on the other hand, it seems to me that the more advanced a civilization becomes, at some point, something, someone, well, let's blame the archons then, crushes it so it doesn't get the chance to excel above it's like Alcetrel delete the monkeys. Hey, the monkeys are, you know, the, the tower is getting too close to us. It's Icarus closing up to the sun, right? Right. This thing has to fall. It's like they're regulating us on a macro level like that too, which means we're in deep trouble now because we're starting in known history. We're, we're really stretching it to the brink of what's been maybe even before like a, Maybe even beyond what an Atlantis managed to reach, although there are, there are indications that there are human traces on planets in this solar system that we have reached those levels before. But at any rate, at some point we are crushed. Yeah. Okay, it may be our own fault because we are what we are, warlike and, and all that, but it can also be that they are stopping that. What's your thought about that? Do they want us to excel in material development or do they want to keep us at bay i i think i would agree with philip k dick he said that our divinity that our divine spark was expressed or originated from our ability for empathy Mm -hmm. what the more empathy we have the more divine and free we are paradoxically perhaps because we're always in the service of others Mm. but uh, when we lose our empathy we become more mechanistic and we become i don't want to say less human but less alive and we become more obedient and we become more uh just doing what we're told i mean in in dick's view uh he thought that androids could never be conscious they could never be human because they had the inability for empathy so i think that's the goal i mean uh, again There was a time when we killed animals, but we would always pray and worship these animals at the same time for what they brought into our lives. Now, Yeah, but that this would be Sophia's goal, not the Archon's goal. No, I would say, yeah, to, to, to smother any sort of empathy we have yeah. and uh, keep us as basically data cogs in the machine who don't understand what's going on, what's being, you know, we don't know. We don't care anymore about the food that comes to our table, what's happened to it. We don't pray to that food or give thanks about that food. And this spreads to other parts because we're, again, we've been atomized. Our consciousness is being atomized. Our thoughts are becoming more uh, automatic and mechanistic. So, yeah, that would be the goal of the Archons. This is identical to certain political agendas and, and the oligarchs and the deep state and all that stuff. So, uh, But obviously these people who enact these things mm-hmm. aren't enlightened. I, I doubt they're in touch with uh, any higher... They, they must be tools. And in that case, I wonder, because many of them are psychopaths or have strong psychopathical oh, yes. traits. So maybe psychopathy exactly. is a condition that is serving the archons. Well, what did uh, Hermes Trismegisto say? As above, so below. 
So on earth as in heaven, and the Gnostics, and I guess that might even include Hermes Trismegistos, although the Hermetics were more positive a bit, would say, yes, uh, the rulers of this age, as St. Paul calls them, the archons, he uses the word archons, mm -hmm. they're simply a reflection of the heavens above. The ancients, including the Gnostics, believed in the theory of correspondence. What was happening in the heavens reflected down here on earth. The Gnostics simply posited because the rulers of the heavens were insane and psychopathic and devoid of uh, real spirit or empathy that therefore their, their closest manifestations on earth would be that. In fact, the Gnostics used to say, yes, I can uh, replace the ruler that uh, controls me in the Zodiac, and I can replace him with the Apostle Peter or the Apostle James or somebody good instead of my uh, representation up in the heavens always being an archon, these nasty beast-like uh, beings. Mm. So the, the Gnostic idea of liberation would be that we are not going to transcend matter, but that we're going to leave it behind. We're, again, we are going to we can transcend matter, we can be transformed alchemically or individuated, we can break away from the wheel of karma and we can become healers, we can actually uh, become healers of other physical or mental, but ultimately we are transformed to help others to get out because uh, until every spark, and in their mythology, every spark is free, Sophia cannot return home. And, and so we can't leave anyone behind. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, that's the problem. Right. Or at least we should have that added. Because there's so many idiots. Yeah. Well, some will just not get it and choose to stay down here, they would say. But uh, we have to pretend that we need to give it our best shot to rescue, uh, rescue and restore the universe. And some Gnostic Gospels actually said that the, the rain and the waters are the tears of Sophia because she's weeping because her children are lost down here on earth. Mm. And she wants, all, she wants to gather all of her children. Now, whether that means each human being or you can make arguments even in the Kabbalah that our divine sparks can move to other beings if we don't. Uh, do a good job in our reincarnations. I think it was that uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner said we will had, what, 13 reincarnations, and if we screwed up, we would just be destroyed. I think the Gnostics might agree with that, that uh, the divine spark has to be nurtured and released, or else it maybe needs to go somewhere else, somebody better, my yeah. dog or something, <laughs> a cat who can do a better job. Yeah, reconstructed, and, and that energy will be used uh, somewhere else, because some people are beyond redemption. I mean, if everybody has to eventually get it, then it would be uh, an argument for, you know, the theosophical view is that this life is a school right. and the real trans, uh, the real progress is the souls. That's the pupils moving up. Uh, so we come down here, we uh, evolve and then we leave and so this level will always be the same so we go to another school a higher school that's one concept but then there is the concept that it is a collective involvement and and according to what you're saying now that would be a gnostic concept because if we all if sophia needs all her bits all her parts to to get free then 
everybody. Uh, but I don't see any hope for deep psychopaths no. and also some of their biggest victims, some of the drones, no. the, the, the sleepwalkers. The worst sleepwalkers and the worst psychopaths are really the biggest problem in the world. Yes, and they might not even be human. They might be as Lash and others said. They might be the thought forms dressed up as humans. And right. and it should be mentioned, the Gnostics always believed in, in eternal speculation. They thought, we're, we're going to put everything on the table. Some posited they, that it was they were universalists. Everybody got saved. Other positive, no, 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 as we're arguing, and not everybody chooses to go to the other side. Some people choose as uh Gurdjieff said that immortality has to be earned it's not just like it's not yeah. granted yeah. so everything could be speculated there was only one thing that it could, was non-negotiable and that was gnosis that was basically the gnostic yeah. how you want to get there if you want to believe how many angels on the pin of a needle whether we all get saved or there's eight or the archons are aliens or not the truth is we are trapped and gnosis will set us free hmm. yeah but, uh, yeah, individually or collectively or? Uh, well, ultimately, it starts individually. It starts with what I can do today to become free. I mean, as Eric... Because uh, they, they do say that Jesus and Buddha and many of these avatars, now I'm using it in a classical uh, term, right. that they had a choice of moving on, but uh, they loved humanity, and so they turned around and came back to this godforsaken place just to help <laughs> us move on, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like a it's like a sacrifice on their part. Kudos. Yeah, I, I bet. That's a real sacrifice. It is. It is. When you're in the place of ultimate bliss and oneness, mm. and you got to come down to this veil of tears and uh, and deal with us. In some Gnostic gospels, Jesus has in one Gnostic gospel, the Gospel of Judas, Jesus finds out he can't fix anything. He he criticizes the church for human sacrifice and he says all of yeah. humanity is into cannibalism and human sacrifice and he sort of just says i'm done and he just leaves i mean it's very existentialist and dark so i'm sure it's it's a hard journey coming down to here helping others yeah yeah would, would you say the gospel of judas is gnostic yes it definitely comes from the sethian tradition but it's and it has a lot of the terminology, like uh, instead of calling Sophia, she's often called Bar Below. Mm. Uh, and it has a lot of the concepts that are not, awesome, but it's very, very dark because, again, the world is not going to be saved. We've all we've all done a pact with the demiurge and we are all sacrificing children and eating other humans. And that is our destiny. And Jesus, basically, he can't do anything about it. He sort of says, tells Judas is like, this is it. I'm out of here. And in some translations, Judas is actually the demiurge incarnated on earth. And that's scary because Jesus shows Judas gnosis. He shows them the truth of the mysteries of the universe. And then you find out he's the demiurge and you go, oh, crap. The demiurge just had gnosis. Now he's even more powerful because yeah. before he's sort of ignorant about the truth above him. He doesn't accept Sophia. He doesn't. Well, hang on, that. I thought the uh, the Gospel of Judas said that Judas sacrificed himself for Jesus, in that he took the blame, he took the fall, and that he really was uh, he was a patsy, basically. There's different translations. Okay. Uh, when a, when a text comes, I mean, remember 
we've had 2,000 years to translate the Bible and the different versions and what this Greek word means. The Nag Hammadi came out in 1979, so we've only had a generation. The Gospel of Judas, we've got about, what, 10, 15 yeah. years? So there are different trends. Some say, yes, Jesus is actually the good guy. He's helping Jesus, and but others say no. He's actually a demon. He's actually the de it's a it's a big trick on the universe. You know, the greatest trick the demiurge ever told us is that he was a good guy or that he was Judas. So, because now he has gnosis, <laughs> what he wanted. Right, but I don't think he can do much about it except recognize it in the world and smash smack it down. Yeah, but, I mean, there are, for example, the Valentinians, they posited that the Demiurge would be redeemed at one point in, in the, at the end of the cosmos. He would get it. Yeah. He would have Gnosis, and he would awaken, because he still has the essence of Sophia within him, yeah. and he would actually help the entire universe sort of return to its source, all the divinity, even matter, everything would just go back into consciousness. Yeah, but it is pretty simple. When enough people, we, we talk about critical mass, right? Let's talk about the biggest critical mass there is, namely waking up. When enough people are woken up, the rest will follow. And when we are out of here, he will be very lonely because there's no, there's no animal trapped in his zoo anymore, right? Right. So then he has no choice but to return to the source where everybody's having a party. And that's when he will wrap <laughs> up things and bring the matter with him. So, yeah, I get it that he will be the last to. But back to the darker aspects we discussed, because you're talking about cannibalism. Obviously, that's a material uh, consummation. And we, you mentioned also right. that they feed off our negative emotions. And emotions has to do with consciousness. But there is a third element there's basically three elements in existence making up the world. There is this ray of mind or consciousness, yes. Then there is mm -hmm. the ray of matter creating atoms and all that, yes. And then mm -hmm. there's the third one we could call life force. And we have concepts about parasitic creatures for, of life force too, namely succubus and incubus. Right. And that's where spermonosticism would uh, come to its right place. Because if there are creatures feeding off a sexual energy, you know Willem Reich, of course, and organs, right? Right. So, is is it just that they try to take all forms of energy, or or any thoughts about this? Uh, again, any form of divine energy that was stolen from Sophia, I think that would be it. I mean, uh, again, I don't. So, what is divine energy? Well, it would be the. Would matter be? Uh, no, matter is again the uh, the leftover or the the suffering and the negative emotions of Sophia in the chaos. And again, it's very much like the demiurge in Plato, who fashions this world out of chaos, and it's ultimately a deficient form, but it's still good. The Gnostics said, no, it's bad. It's been fashioned by the evil demiurge, but it is infused and sustained by the essence of Sophia. And I guess in that way, if you want to approach Sophia sort of Shakti or something like that, mm -hmm. the Indian, where the, the, the vitality of the universe, and yeah, you could approach it that way. But uh, ultimately, our our thoughts and everything is what's constructed by the archons. And in, in, in one of the Gnostic gods, there's a factory. And not only do they build our bodies, but they also program our minds 
so that every mental disease, every failure, every bad decision, like you shouldn't have broken up with her. It's like programmed in our heads and our very souls. And then the spark is sort of hidden within it, like a little, like the all spark of the, of a, what do you call it? I already forgot the, that robot show uh, with uh, Optimus Prime and so forth. The, oh, yeah. The all spark. So, um, that, uh, so I would, I would, definitely approach it that way or there's a different uh, ways you can uh, uh, go around the Gnostic house right hmm I don't know if you noticed but I'm deliberately asking more philosophical questions now as we move on uh, All right. because I can't do that with everyone but with you I obviously can and that's in- and I like that uh, when you answer you also tie into different schools of thought different theories and kind of give it that academic um, backup too. All right, no problem. Now, I, I want to take on a specific uh, philosophical conundrum or question, uh, and I want to do it like this. I want to tell you something that a teacher I once had said. Okay. Now, he said that on the bottom of the world, the material world, there will be a domination of negative or, or you should say decay, destruction, minus. Whereas the top part of it is the immaterial world, which is dominated by the plus or construction by creativity, by evolution, whatever you want to call it. That's opposite. Uh, The reflection, if you like. So good constructive forces are dominant on the metaphysical plane. Okay, okay, got it. And therefore, the reason why the negative, the destructive forces seems to win all the time here. Because, you, I mean, you can build for, for a lifetime and someone can tear it down overnight. That's the gist of this place. And yeah. the reason the negative or, or the decay seems to dominate in this world, it's pretty simple. In this world, in the matter world, there has to be a dominant negative minus. Because if, if the good forces, if you like, were ruling here, then we would be slaves, we would be robots, because we would choose the right and the good and everything, everybody, all the time, because it was immediately rewarded. We would have no other choice. It would be like uh, electroshock or whatever that you're going to be punished for psychopathy. It would be conditioned learning. So if you're a psychopath or just a sleepwalker or an egotist, whatever, you will realize very early, oh my God, I will maybe be rewarded materially if I, you know, walk over others, if I try to just get whatever I can. You know, you can't be rich in this world, almost not, without having blood on your hands. And it's kind of like that. They see the immediate, but they don't see the spiritual, they don't see the top immaterial world. That's Sophia. They can't see it. They're blinded by the demurge and the material level. Now, if you choose to do good, despite that it won't not pay off, and this is heretical too, because people say, oh, you get good karma if you do good. So here the thought is, you do good despite this world, because you know about the top immaterial world. So on the spiritual level, you'll excel. But on the material level, probably you'll not. But uh, in the material level, you will maybe be rewarded for following minus or the evil destructive forces. And this is an interesting concept because then you have to realize that there's something more in order to have an incentive or be motivated to do good. And that's the freedom. That's the free choice we have, Uh, you know, getting fed up of the material plane and then realizing, okay, I have to I have to think in a longer perspective then. 
just this life. This life is but a day, right? So, exactly. would you say that doctrine, if you if you feel you got the gist of it, would you say that's a Gnostic doctrine? I would say so to an extent. I mean, I would uh, certainly add, as again I mentioned, Philip K. Dick. You also should add, and I guess it maybe just brings a little more nuance to it. But uh, the idea of empathy and couching it towards. Uh, uh, suffering, easing of suffering. The ease of suffering, of course, always means, uh, in a way, more freedom, more in touch with our inner selves, and uh, the stopping of suffering in different ways. I mean, it could be physical suffering, mental suffering, and the suffering of others, uh, mm -hmm. the connection we have with each other. But all in all, from a, you, you say, a, a philosophical, metaphysical approach, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because if there wasn't such a thing as evil or whatever you would call it, we wouldn't really be free, would we? Mm. Let, let me give you this metaphor. If everything was light, complete 100% light, to us there would be no difference than if everything was darkness. You see what I mean? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I'm trying to think of more. How could you distinguish? Well, if there was complete freedom, would I know what being captivity is? That's a good question. I mean, mm. isn't that what the myth of Sophia shows us? She was up in the aeons and being the personified wisdom of God, she had to experience all the negativity, mm. including uh, the war with her son, the suffering down on earth, so that she could then, uh, again, perhaps bring all that information back to the divine realm. I mean, these are good questions. I don't... Uh, Could you elaborate on the war with her son myth? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, when Sophia is uh, cast down or separated from the alien god, she gives birth to the Demiurge. And uh, the Demiurge immediately takes her power and creates a universe and sets himself up as the ruler of the world. And, of course, they associated it with the Old Testament god, but... Also, sometimes it was Zeus, and in some of their myths, yeah. it was actually Cronus, the lord of time. He was the ultimate bad. Yeah, right. It's always the sons. Why are they being such dicks? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, the myth cuts on many levels. You know, the prodigal son. Yeah. Why does my son, he thinks he can do better than me? Okay, let's watch him. <laughs> yeah, probably because they all have tyrannic fathers. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, uh, and of course, it's a myth of the ego. You have wisdom and then you have yeah. the ego. The demiurge is associated with the ego who thinks it could do better than listening to uh, the inner voice, uh, the traditions of our parents and so forth, but uh, mm. or our ancestors. So there's many ways to cut it. So, but that is a good question. If I only knew life, would I know darkness? I don't know. I haven't, I don't have any... I mean, you would choose good if you immediately were rewarded for it. But how much would people really choose? Not so much... Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, if the good is within me and it can grow, I mean, I always like to say empathy and liberation. What makes me free? Yeah, but it wouldn't be a choice, would it? If you immediately was rewarded, you wouldn't have that. You need a tempter. What did you call it? You said um, uh, that the trier? Was that what you call Lucifer? Yeah, yeah, he tester. was Yeah, he was the tester or the, uh, what's the name of the lawyer? Yeah, he was the lawyer of God, the prosecutor who challenged you. And made sure that you were holy and good. I think Set in the Egyptian myths is associated. He's a guy who's going to challenge Saturn. Right. Yeah. Saturn is obviously limits and boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, the threshold, the dweller of the threshold, as one says. 
Right. Yeah, yeah from Steiner, which he got from, uh, uh, what's it, a Bolter or Leighton, the author. <laughs> oh, I thought he got it from Theosophy. They used that term there, too. Yeah, yeah, but before that, it was uh, the Rosicrucian Edward uh, Bolton Layton, I believe, who wrote okay. it in Zosimos. Mm. I think that's the name of the novel. But anyway. But it is the same kind of figure, right? It is like if he has the function of testing us to see, no, no, you can't. It's like the schoolmaster. Have, have you washed your hands? If not, go back and wash them. If you didn't have such a function, uh, it would be a hippie colony, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, we That's... need we need something to test that we have reached a new level. I kind of I'm Saturnian enough to support that principle. Right. That's the uh, what's the name of that occult group? The Brotherhood of Saturn believes that they they feel the demiurge. Saturnitus Saturnia. Yes, they they see the demiurge as a good person or a necessary the, the Dutch uncle, if you would. But again, wow. in the Gnostic system we were in the light and we were cast down in the darkness. So we know yeah. we have a remembrance of what it used to be like before. Exactly. We're not starting. So uh, this is how we get back. We want to go home. Yeah, we long for home. So we know both. I think that's so human. It's so human to have the duality and be stuck yes, there. Yes. But it's so human to know both things. And I think that's the envy of the other cosmic creatures. Even though they're higher than us in, in, in existence level, they're not higher than us in, you know, they're higher than us in quantity, but not in quality, if you see what I mean. Right, exactly. Okay, do you have anything to add to the discussions before we move on to your books? No, I think... Uh, I not that I can think of. I mean, we've covered a lot. Talking about Lash, not in his image, Archons, different Gnostic sects. No, we've touched upon the Archons being aliens. We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we've had a good discussion here. We've covered a lot. And uh, I think you're doing a very good job of relating the Gnostic myths. So, because uh, I think it's it's kind of sad that they don't have that much attention compared to you know the uh, vetted myths of the Catholics. So, uh, like yeah. some of the stuff we we did mention is, I think they're very interested when you talked about how the uh, cosmos is constructed and Sophia and all that stuff, that's gold. Mm. That's what I know people love to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More on the Gnostic myths. Yeah. You better do it soon because of yeah. my time. <laughs> it's a time issue. I, I'm totally with you. Time, that. time. Yeah. <laughs> the great enemy. Yeah, more important than money. Oh, yes, mm. yes. More powerful. Cronus. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Kronos. That's the thing with Kronos. There's not enough of it, but it goes by quickly. It's the big game. It's not enough of it, and it's even an illusion. Isn't that a paradox? <laughs> yes, 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 indeed, indeed. <laughs> and, and the fact that time is speeding up, oh, human resonance, all that stuff, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what but that's another discussion. Hey, I, I may have you back in the future, because uh, I, I think we can squeeze more more out of this. We'll see. If you Yeah, we didn't talk about yeah, Mary Magdalene, the different Gnostic sects like the Yesidi yeah. and the Mandia. There's yeah, there's a whole Sufism, uh, how Kab Lurianic Kabbalah, all those, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, the Da Vinci code. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And the you know, the holy blood and the holy grail and Mary Magdalene. There's stuff yeah. there to dig into, I think. Yeah, we barely scratch the surface on Jung and Philip K. Dick, so yeah. Although, <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. Okay, so I've noticed that you have done a very interesting thing. I think Alex did the same, actually, with his show. Um, he published a book based upon guests he's had. Oh, yeah, yeah. And two of your books seems to be the same thing. Uh, one is called Voices of Gnosticism. The other is called Other Voices of Gnosticism. Uh, is that just because you have more people or is there some kind of difference in the contents? Uh, the first book, Voices of Gnosticism, yes, and it, it is similar to Alex's book, Why Science is Wrong About Everything, except he sort of... In concept. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the Voices of Gnosticism has uh, the transcriptions, but it also has my commentary too. But it focuses more on the historical ancient Gnosticism. It has the lead-in figures and the very translators of the Nag Hammadi Library. Uh, it has uh, work by April DeConnick, Elaine Pagels, uh, yeah. Karen King. Again, the people that were involved when the Nag Hammadi came out. The second book, Other Voices... Hang on, hang on. I have to say David Fiddler is there too. <laughs> yes, he is also there. He's in the second one. And uh, yeah, love David's work. No, he, he's in the one called Voices of Gnosticism. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> tells you, you know, how authors are, we walk away yeah. from a book, and we just, like, uh, <laughs> want to talk about it. Yeah, but, but uh, there's a chap called Aina Thomas, and that's a purely Norwegian name. Is he Norwegian, or? Yes, and he is the leading uh, expert on the Valentinian Gnostics, and... Uh, Never even heard of him. Uh, brilliant, and he's a translator of the Nag Hammadi Library, too, so he's a brilliant guy. Is he in a Norwegian university? Yes, uh, I forgot. I forgot where Oslo. I'm not sure. It's been maybe. You check it up. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's wonderful. Okay. Great interview with him. So, uh, but again, yes, these are the translate. The second book is more on the the historical manifestations of the uh -huh. Gnostics. Although we deal with historical, like focusing on Philip K. Dick, William Blake, Carl Jung. Uh, other figures, as well as figures like Mary Magdalene, Simon Magus, right. uh, Paul of Tarsus. So it's a little bit more uh, fragmented and it focuses on all the history of the Gnostics. Also on Her Hermes Trismegidos and Hermeticism with Gary Lockman. So both books will give you a good orientation of Gnosticism. Yeah, some interesting names in this book is Tobias Churton, my listeners know him, Richard right. Smoley, and you have mm -hmm. Stephen Holler that you mentioned mm -hmm. before today, who's a practicing Gnosticist. Um, by the way, you're talking about Mary and all that stuff. Do you know <clears throat> this, uh, I forgot which book it was, one of these uh, popular pocket, it's where they present uh, John the Baptist and Jesus, it's like two rivaling sects, and mm -hmm. they even claim that some of the Jesus followers set up John the Baptist. Right. It was a trap. I don't Are you know. Familiar what, with that book? No, but that is a tradition. I mean, there was a tradition, for example, that uh, Simon Magus, who's one of the, as they say, one of the founders of Gnosticism, the father of all heresy, he was the successor of uh, John the Baptist, not Jesus, right. and he was the one who carried this Jewish mystery to tradition. And of course, the Mandeans, who are probably with the Yesidi, the last remaining Gnostic group from antiquity, they claim that John the Baptist is a prophet and Jesus is an usurper. So uh, you have this tradition yeah. in ancient times. This book says the same thing, yeah. It's not, it's not, nobody made this up. This is like no, no. Yeah. thousands of years old. <laughs> it's interesting that you have uh, Jesus and uh, Simon Magus living at the same time, and a third chap who represents a third uh, stream, namely the pre-Socratic stream, namely Apollonius. 
Exactly. Yeah, three. All of them operated at the same time. And they're, yeah, they are parallel, and all three of them are Christ figures, just a little different degrees on what they're yeah. marketing and what they were trying to do. But yes, they're all definitely Jesus figures or Savior figures, if you would. Yeah. And these books we can get from your website, I guess, the uh, thegodabovegod.com. That is correct. And uh, all my books, some of my fiction books, podcasts, and everything. Yeah, let's go to them. Yeah. Uh, Stargazer, Heretic, uh, and the Executioner's Daughter. When I read the summary of them, I immediately imagined them as Hollywood movies because <laughs> I think they would work perfect. <laughs> I wish. I've tried. <laughs> I have tried. Go to Netflix. Fuck Hollywood. That's <laughs> old school. Go to Netflix or HBO or something. This is material for a series. Uh, if you see all the crap they're sending now. Yes, yes. And, and they try to emulate stuff like this because they know it uh, works, right? Of course. Yeah, so this would be perfect. But tell us a little about your fictions. Yeah, well, my book, uh, Stargazer, was actually once published by uh, Warner Books as uh, the Queen of Darkness. And basically the concept is that uh, the vampires ruled by their Queen Lilith decide that they want to be uh, take over the world. So they create a nuclear explosion, destroy civilization, and then through the ashes they enslave the remaining humans. And uh, they have these city-states sprout up from the, the, ashen, the ashes or the gray world, and they enslave these humans. And Lilith being a good demiurge, because that's how you control people, she makes sure to uh, wipe out the truth that vampires used to be humans. They think that they are separate, uh, that they have always existed, that they are gods. So and that way there's a separation. It's like how we separate ourselves from cows, you know? Yeah. The more there is a separation, the easier it is to slaughter them. Yeah. And, uh, of course, there is one Gnostic vampire who starts having dreams and realizations, and he begins to wake up. Oh, oh so they, they, they not only cover up the truth for humans, they cover it up for other vampires too. Right, it's the only, yeah, you have to, to keep, you know, you don't want vampires to start empathizing with right. humans or realizing, hey, I was once a human. Mm. If I think that I am a god and I've always existed, or that Lilith created me from her womb, she's an anti-Sophia, then I can treat humans like animals like chattel and one vampire has an awakening and he starts a rebellion against his own people oh it's so wonderful it's so gnostic and you know connecting was, vampires and archons that's brilliant man very kudos, much and it, kudos. yes and of course the vampires think they're gods but here is the opposite it's not like man must realize he was god yeah the god must realize he was once a man Right. So it turns it upside down. That it's just brilliant. What about, is that the same theme in all three? It's like a series. No, Heretic is a sequel, and that basically continues the war between uh, the protagonist Byron and Lilith. And then the 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 executioner's daughter is just sort of high fantasy in a world that uh, yeah, it's high fantasy, very uh, uh, sort of say a Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, but it. I don't think it has much Gnostic vibe. It's it's just a bit different. Hmm. Okay. More like a thrilling uh, story. Okay, and then to your podcasts. Tell people about that. Yes. The total full name of your show is Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. Yes. How you pronounce Aeon doesn't matter because we don't know what the Greeks called it. 
<laughs> or how they pronounce it is true. I mean, <laughs> we just don't know. You can, right, right. Like Prometheus or Prometheus, it's it, both are right. Well, uh, <laughs> well. Uh, first of all, they would say R, not R, but uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I think many of my listeners would love your podcast on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think many of them are not even aware of it. Yes, well, it's, Gnosticism is always marginalized and niche, so that makes sense. <laughs> you get a lot more traffic than I do, that's for sure. But that's because uh, uh, that's maybe that's how I've kept it in some subconscious way. I don't promote very much. But uh, yes, it's AM by Gnostic uh, Radio. It's at the God above God. If you go there... It's all things Gnosticism and its satellite uh, uh, topics and how it uh, manifests throughout history or expresses throughout history. So you get uh, from Sufism to modern conspiracy theory to David Icke to uh, breaking down the different Gnostic texts and how Sophia is. So a lot of great scholars, a lot of great researchers. Like I said, Tobias Churton is one of those who has honored the show, and you can find it there. It's available, download, iTunes, YouTube, uh, wherever you want it, uh, you can find it. But you just have to, I guess you have the gnosis now to find out where it is. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And I have to say, uh, when we started the show, I didn't know much about podcasts, honestly. I didn't listen that much, so I didn't follow the so-called rules. So, you know, I've squeezed you for a few hours now. I do that all the time. I just open the mic and there's no prescripted stuff. Everything is on the go. It's on the flow. Right. It's whatever. It's just you and me sitting down for a coffee with a mic on. That's my concept. And that's shown to be, if if not very popular, it at least has a segment of your population who loves it. And you told me that's kind of your own uh, style too. That's why, you know, I've listened to some of your shows and I guess that's why they're so good. I think that's a brilliant recipe. And people loving that recipe in my shows would then automatically also like that in your show. So I suggest people that you go over to Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio if you don't already know about it and, and give it a chance. And w- what should the beginner start with? Uh, the beginner should probably start with The Matrix. Watch it again. No, I mean, I mean of your show, shows. <laughs> I know. Oh, I don't even know. I've done so. I mean, I've done over 400, no, 300 interviews. Jeez. So it is, yeah, it is hard. It's probably better if you get voices of Gnosticism so you can get a foundation and mm-hmm. then uh, listen to some of the scholars from different universities, April DeConnick, Elaine Pagels, Karen King, and uh, anything with Tobias Churton, Andrew Phillips Smith, you know, people who are really embedded, not just in a scholarly way, but they have empathy. They try to understand how it relates to our modern times and then yeah. just go from there. It's uh, again. Yeah, I see you have even bought Ehrman. There's many yeah. academics in your list here. Yeah. How long have you been going? 12 years now. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And again, a lot of the time I was just. Uh, there was no advertising or promoting. I simply did it to share it with others yeah. who were interested. Uh, uh, there was a time where basically it was only scholars who were listening to the show because they wanted to understand the latest research and data. And then yeah. it's only in the last four or five years that I've expanded, if you would. Mm. Okay. How often uh, do you come out with a new show, approximately? 
I'd say an average every week. And uh, there, wow. there's variety you know, once every week. And then I like to sometimes do a YouTube live or a vlog. So there's a lot of variety how I approach it. Uh, could do more video, but as we were talking, it's uh, we need to find our uh, our video guru out there to do our work for us. Yeah. Well, so if you're out there, let me know. <laughs> yeah. That's the only way. Me too. I, I couldn't. I mean, I do some videos too, but uh, I get valuable help for that. Yes, help is good. But I'm, uh, I've am i only been going for a few years and I can't seem to make more than two a month at top, sometimes just one a month. So it's amazing that you have time for. How, how long are, are, are your shows in general? Is there any rule there? <sighs> No, I'd say between an hour and an hour and two hours. Sometimes it's an hour depending on scheduling, but sometimes we go two hours. So mm. it, uh, it's not. Uh, again, I've been doing it for so long. It's. Uh, I know the operation. I can get them out, and I have help like you. I have a producer and other people that help me get it out. Yeah, it comes highly recommended. Of course, you've had Robert Bonham on the show too, and, and Alex. Yeah. Yes, great people. Love both of them yeah. and love Same their work. Here. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, and your show's doing well. I mean, again, your numbers are far better than mine. So, kudos to you. Thank you. I don't know how because I haven't lifted a finger. But um, <laughs> um, I guess I'm do. I, I guess the, you know what the Archons haven't noticed me properly yet. <laughs> well, you just wait. They will sooner or later. People are I waking know, up. They're going to be gunning for you. I know they're onto me. They're onto me. <laughs> <laughs> but I have protection, but let's not go into that. <laughs> but it was excellent to chat with you today, just like I love it. Very back and forth and, and touching a lot of things because it's not our job to go as deep as a book or even a meditation. Some things we have to leave of course. to them. We're just giving them teasers, tasters, and then they have to take it deeper. There you go. And now we've pointed to many doors. And so uh, have at it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, it was a pleasure, Miguel. Thank you. I like your vibe. Enjoyed it. Cool. I like yours. Keep doing what you're doing. Let's we keep awakening people. Let's Absolutely. keep doing it and being under the radar of the archons. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Ditto everything. Okay, then. So thank you very much for your valuable time and for the very interesting discussion we've had today. Thank you. It's been all my pleasure. Okay. Later, man. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. Thus far today, we are going to return to Gnosticism and Esotericism one third time. And then we'll focus a little on Jesus and some of the heretical aspects of him. I have chosen for you, as usual, uh, a few quotes, because we did focus to a considerable extent upon the Archons, It's only fair that I end this show with a few quotes of them. And there's so much to choose between, so I'll just give you a little sample. First, from the Gospel of Philip. The archons wanted to deceive a man, since they saw that he had a kinship with those that are truly good. They took the name of those that are good and gave it to those that are not good, so that through the names they might deceive him and bind them. And there is a work out there called The Hypostasis of the Archons, which can be 
translated to the reality of the rulers and i really recommend you to check this one out the, i mean this is just one of many sources on the archons but it's pretty interesting it tells you about the creation of adam and eve it tells you about adam and eve in the garden where among else eve is raped by these archons now obviously there's a lot of symbolism here and you will find very good symbolist analysis of these things so not everything is to be taken literal and this goes out to you ufo nuts especially but that said uh, a truth can be valid on several levels at the same time and i'm not sitting here as a judge of how you are going to interpret this all i'm saying is this stuff is interesting from many different angles You'll see also in this uh, hypostasia of the archons how the f they were behind the flood and how Noah battled with the archons. But I'll choose uh, another quote from the epilogue. Then I said, Sir, am I also from their matter? You, together with your offspring, are from the primeval father. Their souls come from above, out of the incorruptible light. Therefore, the archons cannot approach them, since the spirit of truth resides in them, and all who have known this way exist deathless in the midst of dying people. Still, the offspring will not become known now. Instead, after three generations, it will come to be known and free them from the bondage of the archons' error. Then I said, Sir, how much longer? He said to me, Until the moment when the true human, within a modelled form, reveals the existence of the spirit of truth that the Father has sent. Then he will teach them about everything, and he will anoint them with the unction of life eternal given him from the generation without a king. Then they will be free of blind thought, and they will trample on death, which comes from the archons, and they will ascend into the limitless light where this offspring belongs. Then the archons will relinquish their ages, and their angels will weep over their destruction, and their demons will lament their death. Then all the children of the light will truly know the truth and the root and the father of all and the Holy Spirit. They will all say with a single voice, the father's truth is just and the child presides over all and from everyone till the ages of ages. From the Gospel of Mary. And the disciple asked, Will matter then be destroyed or not? The Saviour said, All nature, all formations, all creatures exist in and with one another, and they will be resolved again into their own roots. For the nature of matter is resolved into the roots of its own nature alone. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. From the Gospel of Judas, Jesus said, Let any one of you who is strong enough among human beings bring out the perfect human and stand before my face. They all said, We have the strength. 
But the spirits did not dare to stand before him, except for Judas Iscariot. He was able to stand before him, but he could not look him in the eyes, and he turned his face away. Judas said to him, I know who you are, and where you have come from. You are from the immortal realm of Barbello, and I am not worthy to utter the name of the one who has sent you. From the secret book of John, also known also known as the Apocryphon of John, wherein the Apostle describes, All contest is not against flesh and blood, rather the archons of the universe and the spirits of wickedness. I have sent you this because you inquire about the reality of the archons. Their chief is blind. Sophia wanted to bring forth something like herself without the consent of the spirit, and because of the invincible power within her, her thought was not an idle thought. Something came out of her that was imperfect and different in appearance from her and was misshapen. When Sophia saw what her desire had produced, it changed into the figure of a snake with the face of a lion. Its eyes were like flashing bolts of lightning. She surrounded it with a bright cloud and put a throne in the middle of the cloud so that no one would see it except the Holy Spirit, who is called the Mother of the Living. She named her offspring Yaldabaoth. And finally, another excerpt from the hypostasis of the Archons. A veil exists between the world above and the realms below, and shadow came into being beneath the veil. That shadow became matter, and that shadow was projected apart. And what Sophia had created came to be in matter, like an aborted fetus. It assumed a shape molded out of shadow, and became an arrogant beast resembling a lion. It was androgynous, as I have already said, because it derived from matter. Opening his eyes, Yalda both saw a vast quantity of endless matter, and he turned arrogant, saying, I am God, and there is no one but me. And from Exodus 23, Jehovah tells Moses, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying this esoteric path. We are continuing to strolling down. And I promise you I'll return with many subsequent outstanding explorations in this field onwards. Until then, under the Archont Raider, I remain your sincere host, Al, due to your support and my team. Seeing you. number one.